Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. You've been given a great gift, George. A chance to see what the world would be like without you. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are continuing our exploration of one of our favorite holiday films, It's a Wonderful Life. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello everyone, my name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California, and of course, uh, Excited as well as Steve is to jump back into one of our favorite films and explore what's been going on at Bedford in Bedford Falls here. It's funny. We've just had a really horrible tragedy and reversal in life with the death of Peter Bailey and George being forced to take over the building and loan and sacrificing his trip to Europe and college. And we're about to get to one that another yet another disappointment in the life of George Bailey. <laughs> Should we should we jump right into it? Let's do it. Let's jump right into it. So uh, we're at the train station and it's been four years and Harry went off to college and George has a bunch of pamphlets in his hands. And what's interesting, by the way, is they're all pamphlets to jobs in faraway places. Mm. But college is now out. You know what I mean? Yes. And, oh, and yes. No college is done. He's a, he is only a high school graduate. Yeah. Yeah. And no trip to Europe, and he's talking to Uncle Billy, 
and then the train comes up and there's Harry and they joke and there's this woman standing behind him. I want you to meet Ruth. Hello. How do you do? Ruth Dakin. Ruth Dakin Bailey, if you don't mind. <sighs> Harry, you son of a bitch, man. I mean, and, and by the way, again, Jimmy Stewart's a fantastic actor. The yes. way he plays the reaction to this and the being very formal and then realizing this is his new sister-in-law and giving her hug and celebration. Hey, well, what's a pretty girl like you doing marrying this two-headed brother of mine? Well, I'll tell you, it's purely mercenary. My father offered him a job. And George stops. Yeah. And Harry says... About that job. Bruce spoke out of turn. I never said I'd take it. What do you think about Harry Bailey? The, let me tell you something, Harry. You know, George saved your life when you were a kid. Yes. Um, you dragged him to the fucking dance and then introduced him to the, uh, or uh, uh, where he met the lo uh, love of his life again. And you took advantage of the fact that George had to stay and take care of the building alone. You probably never wanted to take care of the building alone. You probably no. dreaded the fact that George was going off to Europe. And then as soon as you're coming back, Harry Bailey, you get married. And you meet someone, and you don't tell anybody you got married. I know that he saves everybody on the transport, and certainly that's very heroic of him for sure. But he went to college knowing that once he was done with college, he was going to have to building a loan, meets a woman, marries her without telling her anybody in his family, and then takes a job with her dad and kind of gives all the indication that he's going to take this job. And clearly, she has no idea that he's supposed to come back and take care of the building and loans. So he really screws George in this whole situation. It didn't play like, oh, you know, I meant to tell you, oh, uh, you know, but I would like to talk. To oh, never mind. We'll talk about it later. She spoke out of turn. Ridiculous. This is all him. This is what they call the great line. It's better to be forgiven than to get permission. And clearly he is about trying to get forgiven here rather than getting permission. Look, this is a dick move. I, a I, I'm so the more I think about Harry Bailey, yeah. the angrier I get about it. Because let's let's go. I hadn't even thought about the fact that George saved his life, but you're right. Guy saved my life, and then it's really really clear that George didn't go to college, worked yeah. for four years, and he says that he and Harry had worked it out and what the plan was, which is that George would get to go to college and Harry would take over the job. Right. Now, do you think there was any ambiguity about this plan? No. Like Harry could Zero. have misunderstood. Yeah, it was absolutely 100% clear. Then when George takes over the building and loan, is forced to, yeah. who pays for Harry to go to college? Right, exactly. George does. George yeah. pays because yeah, he had he took his money that he had worked for himself. Right, right, right. And gives it to his brother to go to college. The only reason that Harry can be a researcher, because he's a wizard research, we're going to hear in a moment, is because George paid for him to go to college. Right. This is the most manipulative. It is terrible yeah. what Harry does. Because he did, he, he, the only honorable thing he could have said is, look, I'd really love to marry you. I'd really love to take this job. But I made a deal with my brother, and I have to go back. This is my response. That's the only yeah. honorable thing for him to do. So if you want to be with me, you're going to have to move to Bedford Falls with me. Yeah. And we'll go from – which means you're going to have to be away from your dad, and we're going to have to make it work there for four years yeah. until George comes back. Yeah. Right. And then after that, then maybe I can take the job or whatever. Yeah. I It is – and the fact getting married without telling anyone – and you're telling me that – That's Aaron, what, It's really dirty. It's terrible. And, and it's like I love this movie. I absolutely love the movie. This isn't a criticism of the movie, but this was my very strong reaction okay. to watching this this time. Is like if you wanted a a handbook 
Yeah. To enabling codependent behavior. It is. <laughs> it's a wonderful life. And here is, I'm so, like we know because That's we've seen the great. movie, yeah. that George staying in Bedford Falls changes the world. It is um, what he, yes. his sacrifice is hugely valuable because we can see what we get to see what the world is like without him. Right. But if I were George Bailey's friend right now, I would be telling him, you are not responsible for everybody else's happiness. Yeah. You you actually have the right to go do what you want. Exactly. You know, to live your life. Like, the, the, it, it, uh, one other thing about Harry, by the way, was there any ambiguity about what George wanted to do with his life? No, exactly. George he was very told, clear. He told everyone, I want to leave this town. He told everyone I, what I want to do. Harry knows. And it's like, George Bailey throughout this entire life takes on everybody else's unhappiness yeah. and feels responsible. And it's like having dealt with that personality trait and maybe came from watching this movie and loving it so much. Like this has been a thing that I've had to learn myself of like, no, actually the world is not going to fall apart if I'm not there to try to save everybody. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. like, and, and I also think <laughs> it's rude. It's actually doing it. That's why it's codependent behavior. Yeah. All the people that George is saving, it's not always that doesn't always help other people to try to save them. Yeah, exactly. It, 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 yeah, like you said, it becomes codependent. If you keep bailing them out, they keep expecting you to bail them out, and they lie to themselves that they're somehow uh, not thinking that you're going to bail them out. When really at three a.m. in the morning, they know they're going to. They know that they're aware of what they're doing is not good, and they're just going to try to hide it from themselves uh, in the conscious world. And and that's the truth, you know. And so. I know we're going on and on about poor Harry, but it's the truth. This was a bad move by him. And but it's also a young kid's move, isn't it? It's a yeah. pretty young boy's move. And he's pretty, he's good looking, he's young, and he goes off to college and he forgets his mind and he, you know, kind of shirks his responsibility here to George and to the family, by the way, and to his dad. Let's throw yeah. that in the mix as well. The whole community. And the whole community, exactly by doing this. And also <clears throat> another part of this is that. Harry uh, uh, could have let George know this along. Harry could have let yeah. George, he met someone, could have let George know where he was at about the whole situation and didn't. And I think that's the bad move. And the fact that his own mom doesn't even know about this, that's kind of really um, no. some dirty pool here. And remember, in the pool, when they're above the pool, uh, before everything ha opens up and they fall in, remember, um, was it Sam or one of the guys who comes, or maybe it's Marty who comes in and tells uh, George about how um, oh no it's Sam who comes it in and Sam. says that it's they're looking forward to having um, Harry there because Harry's been a star running back and they can't wait for him to get so this all worked out for Harry the least he could do was to open the door for George but you know it's kind of a jerk move to be honest with you but George loves Harry and so he's very sweet to his wife very sweet to the whole situation but it does lead to a very embittered George once again being denied the chance to go see the world and what frustrates him even more is that it's because someone he loves needs something else just a little bit more than he does. And it's terrible for him. It really drives him insane. So we have well, this because, because George has said, Oh, my brother's happiness is more important than my own, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And, and I know there are people listening out here who <laughs> with a sibling or a friend or a spouse where they just continually take on the stuff yeah. and the other person couldn't go out and have fun. And they're holding down the fort. And you know what? I want you all to love this movie. And I also want you to give yourselves permission to not be George Bailey. Yeah. We, you we know? want you to love yourself and we want you to love the movie and love yourself. Harry's a genius at research. My father just fell in love with him. 
You did too. And she nods. And we know. We know what George is going to do. Yeah, yeah. It's later on, and we have a very, very funny bit with Thomas Mitchell, Uncle Billy, being drunk. <laughs> and he's just, he's he, the guy plays a great drunk, as you see in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, too. If you'll point me in the right direction, would you do that, George? Right down. Oh, old Billy and the lone pal. Huh? Now you just turn this way, on that right straight down there. Oh, that way. By the way, the noise that happens here when he slams into the trash cans... That was not um, scripted. That wasn't Mm. him. Someone dropped a large film canister off camera. They caught it in terms of sound. Mm -hmm. And so Mitchell played it off like he had slammed into a bunch of trash cans and was like, I'm all right. I'm all right. That's all improvised. So when I found that out, I was like, that's genius. That's just genius, man. Well, and Jimmy Stewart reacting to it on camera. Yeah. You know, what you get like the honest reaction of like, yep. whoa, what the. Then we have George alone and he's looking down at those pamphlets for all the places he was going to go and work and he tosses them. Yeah. And I'm like, oh. George, you don't have to do that. And, and by the way, I should say just the scene, the separation between the party going on inside yeah. and George literally throwing away his dreams outside mm-hmm. is really powerful. Um, and mom comes out. Did you know that Mary Hatch is back from school? Mm-hmm. Again, one of the things, great movies are built on all sorts of details. Yes. So, so one detail was what you just said about the crash and the improvisational moment. Another moment is details, the throwing away the, the, the future with the contrast with the happiness going on. And now we have a bit that's really funny of him kind of grunting in response over and over again as she's having this scene. And it's fun. Yeah. Well, mom is trying to convince him to go call on Mary. Stop that grunting. Hmm? <laughs> yes, exactly. Can you give me one good reason why you shouldn't call on Mary? Sure, Sam Wainwright. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sam's crazy about Mary. Well, she's not crazy about him. Mom basically says that it is obvious that Mary is in love with you. Yeah. And it seems like he's going to go. And I do like that he 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 um, does his impression of Uncle Billy with. All right, mother old building alone pal. I think I'll go out and find a girl and do a little passionate necking. Now, if you'll just point me in the right direction. And she points him in the right direction. Yeah. And he walks off camera, frame right. And then he walks back in and walks the other way. <laughs> yeah, these are these great moments, right? Because these are these moments, and this it's a smart construction, Stephen. Of course, you know this is the director, but. It's smart construction, smart editing, right? We see George disappointed, but then he immediately at the train station immediately reverts to what am I saying? And he hugs her and he's so happy for a hair. Why did you say something? You know, all of that. Uh, and then later, of course, the ramifications of everything hit him. Uh, and we see Uncle Billy and we see George is a little bit, probably he's had a, a one or two himself. Uncle Billy's certainly drunk, but he's sitting out there and like he, when he throws that stuff away, we feel sympathy for him. And then when he have, he's having this back and forth with his mom, it's very cute, but we can tell that George has a lot of things on his mind. And his mom is trying to do the old school. You know, you know what? If you just get married and have a white picket fence, it'll all work out. But George is driven by something else. George wants more out of life than just the simple relationship and simple house, right? So the fact that they lay this groundwork for you in these scenes so you can connect and sympathize and even smile a little bit or laugh a little bit with the interactions George is having are a great, a great way to keep you kind of soft and open to what's coming next, which is him going to see Mary, which is a a much more emotional and serious scene 
than you might think initially because he's kind of a dick through the scene that we're about to get to until we get to that moment. But we understand why because of these scenes, you know. Why does he change his mind about going to see Mary? Why does he he look like he's going to walk there and then walks the other way? I think because George, I think George resists being told what to do. I have a understanding of that, you know, this idea that someone is mapping out your life for you and it can feel like you have no, um, how can I say this? No autonomy in it or no agency in it, even though it is the right move, even though it is what you're supposed to do. Sometimes, especially those big dreamers being told what to do or being shown the path can cause resistance from you because you want to discover the path. You want to make the decision for yourself. And I think George initially walking one direction and going the other is his way of rebelling against his mother telling him what to do. But like a moth to a flame, he is drawn to Mary because he knows that there's something here with Mary. There's something like Mary is going to help him in some way. He instinctively knows it. He just wants to do it on his time and on his terms so he can have some feeling like it's his choice. You know, I think that's all true. And I mm. think it's more than that because oh, I think okay. deep down he knows that he's in love with Mary. Right. And I think he knows if he goes to see Mary, he could end up marrying Mary mm-hmm. and then he will never leave Bedford. Oh, Falls. good point. Yeah. So he, he was, res- oh, that's actually an excellent point. I don't know if he knows he's in love with her because what he only saw her at the dance and he hasn't seen her for four years. So maybe there's an interest, but I don't think he knows, knows until he walks in that door. She's still in love with him for sure. No question. Um, but yeah. like, but I think you make an excellent point that he knows that if he goes, he's essentially choosing to stay in Bedford Falls. Yep. Yeah, that's a great point, Steve. I hadn't thought of that. So he <laughs> walks into town and it's, and again, like it's so perfect how A, structurally this is set up and B, how we're tracking all these characters because the person he runs into in town is Violet. And yeah. We get a sense from just, um, you like all the boys, what's wrong with that? To when we see her in the beautiful dress, to this moment, we have a sense of who Violet is, right? Oh, I love this interaction. Hey, guys, uh, I may have found my date, but stick around in case I don't. And and the guys <laughs> are like, we'll wait for you here, baby. You know, that whole thing of like, she's got him hanging by a thread. But look what that leads to later on in the film. Yep. When she has no one and she has to borrow money just to get to well, uh, New York because she doesn't want to sell her nice that clothes that she's wasted her money on, in essence. To attract men. Yeah. Well, and it's a, she likes all the boys. She does. But the one guy she really likes. Yes. Is the guy that she can't get. And I think George, honest, dependable, good George, who she is secretly, I don't know, in love with, but definitely that has kept her on the, on the straight and narrow in a way that if his absence, we see that it doesn't, you know? Yeah. Right. When we go to the other, yeah. Where are you going? Oh, I'm probably end up down at the library. Georgie. Don't you ever get tired of just reading about things? Yes. This is so funny. It's such a perfect mismatch. Because she's in, right? Yeah, she's 100%. like, I'm, I'm going to party with George tonight. Because what is what is the date that Violet thinks they're about to have? Yeah, before- oh, they're, yeah they're going to go off and make out and do some Violet necking. That's what they're going to do. Well, not just that. It's we're going to, what does she want? We want to go to the best restaurant and the best oh, club. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. Right, right. Let's you know, it up. let's see the one. Yeah. Right. And so he starts to describe what he wants to do. And he says, Are you game, Vi? Let's make a night of it. Oh, I love it, Georgie. What do we do? Let's go out in the fields and take off our shoes and walk through the grass. Huh? <laughs> and 
And watching her reaction to his perfect date is so funny. Then we can go up to the falls. It's beautiful up there in the moonlight. And there's a green pool up there. And we, we can uh, s- swim in it. And then we can climb Mount Bedford. Does this sound like a date you want to go on? I don't know. N- not for me, no, personally. But I like the romanticism here from George. Right. Because once again, George is a dreamer, right? Yep. She, Violet's not a dreamer. Violet's a pragmatist. And there's the difference there. And I always find this scene fascinating because... She's finally getting her shot with him. Yeah. And she resists everything he wants to do. So it almost seems like she has no idea who George Bailey actually is other than the one that the one she can't have. Right. And I think that's where we see the the reaction from her is so like what the fuck, you know. Well, she wants George Bailey somehow in the world that in her life. Yeah, right, in her life. The way she wants guys to come yeah. back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. George, what about have you gone crazy? Why, walking the grass in my bare feet. <laughs> and I love that the whole crowd has been listening to this. Yeah. And he's super embarrassed. So he was legitimate in what he was saying to Violet. He really. Oh, was. yeah. And I think this is also what you brought up and what I brought up earlier. If he goes off with Violet, he doesn't go off with Mary in this moment. Right. And so going off with Violet is a way to distract himself from this decision of going with Mary. So I'll go off with Violet and maybe it's a, uh, you know, a fleeting thing with them in that night, but at least that night he doesn't choose to stay in Bedford Falls with Mary. He doesn't choose to marry her, but when she rejects him and makes fun of him in front of everybody, I think that's what ends up finally pushing him towards Mary. Well, and it's, it's funny. I don't think there's, I don't think there's a potential for an actual relationship with Violet. No, but no, no. does no. say, we're going to do this. We're going to stay up all night and there'll be a terrific scandal. Yeah. Is that he's going to do something scandalous. I think the scandal with Violet torpedoes the marriage to Mary. Oh, abso- absolutely. Right. Yeah. Which is maybe what he indirectly wants to do to try to stop himself from fully committing to her, which is what you brought up, which I think is great. And then we see, and it's a great shot of him, uh, the choice of showing him kind of torso down, just his legs, walking along the picket fence. Yeah. It's little choices like that that are so great. And it gives you, to me, it gives you the sense of like, he's been wandering around for a while, oh, I yeah. think. Absolutely. Have you made up your mind? About what? About coming in. Your mother just phoned and said you were on your way over to pay me a visit. My mother just called you? Well, how'd she know? Oh, mom, because <laughs> he doesn't like that. He's like, I didn't say that. I didn't ever said that. Yeah. Again, he doesn't want the choice taken yep. away from him. He's a free spirit in a way. Yeah. And she convinces him to come in and she goes downstairs. We see that she has made like a, a needlepoint or an embroidery of George Lasso's The Moon. She puts on the record Buffalo gal. She looks absolutely beautiful. And she is ready to pick up exactly where they left off. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And he comes in again, you know, it's the little bits. He can't get the gate open. And so he kicks it open. Um, How would you describe George George Bailey's behavior in this scene? He's purposely a dick. He's purposely, purposefully um, trying to piss off Mary so that she doesn't love him and doesn't, you know, guide him towards the place where he's resisting going. Do you think that he knows that he remembers that date that they had. Oh, of course he does. Yes, of course. That's why he's blowing it off. Oh yeah. yeah, Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Of course. All of that. He's trying to undercut it. He's trying to douse it with water um, because it's his way of like actively making a decision about this situation and taking control of it in his way. I thought you would go back to New York like Sam and Angie and the rest of them. I don't know. I guess I was homesick. Homesick for Bedford Falls. Yes. 
my family and everything. What is that pause before everything? Who? What's everything? Him. him. It's him, of yeah. course. By the way, he says, at one point, he says, See, it still smells like pine needles around there. You know what thought never occurred to me until this moment? What's that? Do you remember what he said was so great about climbing Mount Bedford? It smells like pine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, which is what Mary's house smells like. Mm-hmm. There's this moment where it gets to the part of the song where they had harmonized together. And he just isn't playing. And it's so, and it's, first of all, Donna Reed is so beautiful in this scene. She's she's great in this scene. Yeah. The changes, the emotional changes she goes through. Yeah. Because you can see the failure of being romantic and then you can see her start to, she's strong. She's a very Mm -hmm. strong character. Nice about your brother, Harry and Ruth, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's all right. Don't you like her? Well, of course I like her. She's a peach. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then she calls him out. Yep. Oh, it's just marriage you don't like. No, no, marriage is all right for Harry and Marty and Sam and you. Have you ever done this, by the way, where you just knew you were acting like a dick and just couldn't stop yourself? Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it's part of too. being young. And now we hear from mom, who is not a fan of George Bailey. Yeah. Not a fan of him being there. George Bailey? What's he want? I don't know. What do you want? Mm-hmm. His reaction is so funny. <laughs> You're the one with all the answers you tell me. Um, and this is when we find out that a Sam Wainwright call is coming. Why don't you go home? That's where I'm going. I don't know why I came here in the first place. Good night. Good night. I love as she gets stronger and tougher with yeah. him. Yeah. And ironically, Steve, Violet has put the kibosh on his romantic notions just oh. a few minutes ago. And here's George putting the kibosh on Mary's romantic notions. And so I love that. As a kind of a juxtaposition, two scenes back to back. That's a that's a great point. And he gets up and leaves. She takes that Buffalo Gals record off the record player and breaks it. Smashes it. Do you think she knows that she could marry Sam Wainwright? Yes. Yeah, 100%. I think she knows. But I also yep. think she, like, like, Violet is wrong for George. Sam is wrong for Mary. And she knows it. She's a little more clear about it than George. Because George is a wanderer. Right? She's very much solid person. She knows what she wants. She knows where she's going. She's wanted George since she was a little girl. And so she understands the situation better than he does. And when she shatters that Buffalo Gals record, I think this time around it was really fun to look at in a symbolic way because what she's doing is shattering the romantic notions of their past. And what they're about to confront is the reality of their relationship, which is. He's an adult now. She's an adult now. There are different approaches to this relationship. It's not based on that puppy dog stuff from when they were right. younger four years ago. This is going to be a tougher marriage. Yeah, this is it kind of foreshadows what's coming. To, this can be real life. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Well, and, and the, you know what just occurred to me? <clears throat> yeah. I don't think George Bailey ever makes a decision about his life. I think all the decisions are made for him. Well, I think he does way. make a decision when he turns Harry Potter, or turns a Harry Potter, Jesus Christ, turns a <laughs> Mr. Potter down. Yes, that he is, the, yeah, the he does, yeah, he does. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the things are, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this, and it's, nope, nope, you will do this. She goes to answer the phone, obviously really, really upset, and George comes back in because he forgot his hat, which makes me think, if we're talking about Jimmy Stewart and hats, there's so much funny hat business in Mr. Smith. Yeah. And um, 
And what's so great is then you watch, Mary is really upset, but now that George is back in the room, she has to pretend to be happy when talking to Sam. Yeah. hee hello, Sam, how are you? This is totally to get him jealous, make him jealous. Totally oh, yeah. Jealous, yeah. Um, well, and to go like, you didn't get to me. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, and she tells Sam that George is there. Now George can't leave because Sam wants to talk to him. Hi, Sam. Well, George Bailiofsky. Hey, a fine pal you are. What are you trying to do, steal my girl? Yeah. <laughs> and we cut to him, and he's like in a tux, and there's a woman hanging on behind him. So yeah, we know what kind of life Sam Wainwright's leading. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, that immediately puts George on the defensive. And, man, I, I love Donna Reed. I love, you, you know, she wipes away a tear, but you just see this tremendous strength in her character. Yeah. And then he says, wait a minute, I want to talk to both of you. And mom is eavesdropping on one line. She is we, not. <laughs> and then we think we're going to get them on two phones. And apparently, originally, they were supposed to be on two different phones. Oh, wow. And Jimmy Stewart, this is his first movie after coming back from the war. And the, what I have read is that the thing he was most nervous about was playing the romantic scenes. Like, he just didn't know if he had that move. In fact, he didn't even know he was going to go back into acting. I don't think I mentioned this in the first part. Mm is he was he came back from the war and went into business do you know what business he went into no no clue he's one of the founders of southwest airlines wow yeah make that money son yeah um and so as jimmy stewart was expressing how nervous he was to play this scene that's when capper came up with the idea of no they're going to be on the same phone so good so smart at this moment it's one of the most amazing moments in any movie I've ever seen. And it's like, it's not, the word isn't sexy or sensual or, or it's not, I don't know what it is. It is so intense and so powerful. Mm -hmm. The two of them listening on that one old fashioned phone, yeah. super close to each other. They are hyper aware of each other and of their closeness. And like, you could feel the heat coming off of them, you know, mm -hmm. it's different. Right? It's different from the heat when they were younger, which was more oh, yeah. innocent. This is hungrier. And yeah. I love that. It's a nice little moment here. You know, some people ding this film as being this like, oh, feel good type movie. You're out of your fucking minds. There's so much darkness in this movie. And the way they get together isn't like singing a song with a rose being handed to her. No. Like something out of Singing in the Rain. This is like um, uh, primal. Yeah. And when they get to that moment, which we're going to get to, that is absolutely a primal moment between two people. There's all these layers going on because what's yeah. happening is Sam is, you know, talking to them about a business deal, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And what I love is even in the midst of the intense, I mean, think of all the emotions George is feeling. He just found out this thing from Harry. He knows he's going to be trapped in this town. He just had that moment with Violet. He's in love with her, or strongly attracted to this person. They just kind of argued. And now in the midst of all of this, he still manages to defend Bedford Falls and convince Sam to open up the factory here. Yeah. Mary, you're in on this too. Now listen, have you got any money? Money? Yeah. Well, a little. And he basically, it's insider trading. He wants them to buy his stock. <laughs> yeah. And you could feel as he's droning the, the, con the tension between them, the connection between them, the primal energy, as you said, between them. Yeah. It's just building and building and building until finally he drops the phone. Now, you listen to me. I don't want any plastics, and I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. So good. 
Well, and it's like, he literally just said, I don't want to marry you. That's yeah. the romantic moment. Well, because, you know? yeah, because like you said, he knows that she is his ticket to staying around this place and he doesn't want to stay around this place. And she symbolizes that in that moment. And then he breaks and just kisses her and hugs her. And she's like, you know, cause she doesn't say, okay, okay. He just breaks. Cause he just yeah. wants to, he wants to just launch a final defense before he gives in, yep. you know, and s- some people are built this way. I just want to protest it. Then I'll accept it. And certainly I'm built this way about a lot of things. And, my girlfriend would tell you that uh, I have to register my protest, then I'll do it, you know? And so I love this moment. I always love this moment since I was a kid, maybe in- instinctively, I sense this, I have a connection to this kind of approach to things. And I, and I think it's fantastic, but I have a question for you, Steve Morris. And I would okay. visit this from a scene we have debated about for years on this show. Steve Morris does not like the moment when Deckard pushes Rachel. I knew you were going to bring this up. Here is Jimmy Stewart. Here is George Bailey, hero of our movie, American hero, shaking the shit out of Donna Reed. You tell me why these two violent moments are different. Um, has uh, George Bailey ever referred to Donna Reed as an it? Well, has George Bailey? Just, she wasn't a replicant. You know, well, that's why I don't like the the. I, you, I don't know if you've ever understood my objection to the Blade Runner moment. <laughs> it's droid lives matter. Is that what your point? Yes. Is that the problem with the problem with it is not that sometimes people get physical. Do people ever get physical with each other in erotic ways? That it yes, leads, it does. Have I ever said that I think that something that happens in the real world should be put out of movies? No, I don't think that. What I I have no I don't have an objection to the fact that they have a physical moment. I have an objection because Deckard is a slave hunter. It's like if you had someone in the in the 1840s hunting slaves to kill them, that's what Deckard's job is. And you had a slave, someone who he knew was a slave, referred to with horrible language as a slave, and then without ever being nice to that person, slam them against the wall. That is... And, and really forces them. That is my problem with the Deckard moment. I reject your construct. How, but I how is it not? Point of view. Are I the replicants slaves? I the replicants think. do they have free freedom to do whatever they want? Uh, yes, because clearly Roy killed a bunch of people, and clearly did to what escape. He to. to escape, he, yeah. So clearly they've had the instincts to escape. They don't always escape, of course, like you said. But they are they are to explore. They because, are escaped slaves. That's because what you have are. to accept they're humans, or I, which I do. Beings are they? I don't know. That's that's what all of Blade Runner is about. Yeah, I know. That's why I don't. And I'm, I don't know if I've ever fallen on one side or the other about it. That's um, a good question, though. Yeah. No, my my issue is not with someone being physical in a in a movie. That's not my issue. Okay, because you called him a dick for doing that. I think, if I remember correctly. Uh, listen, it was like five years ago. <laughs> But I'm sure I had strong words for Decker. But I want to go back to this moment because I think part of what is happening is that he is so desperately in need of someone to love him and in his pain, you know, that well, he's someone to understand him. Yes. Yeah. And the, what's what's so complicated about this moment mm-hmm. is the person he needs to ha- understand him is the person he cannot surrender to <laughs> because it traps him in Bedford Falls. Yeah. And so that tension is happening because, you know, he says, I want to do what I want to do. Right. Which is not marry you. But I desperately, desperately, desperately need you in this moment. I need someone to love me in this moment. 
it's it's it, there are very few scenes that just thinking of them make me cry. Yeah. And I've, I, and right now I'm like right on the verge, just picturing that moment of, of love and surrender. And this is the thing too. And, you know, because you bring up that he shakes her and he's physical. Yeah. Is there any part of Mary that doesn't understand George right now? No, I think she does. I, I think, think she, she absolutely yep. does. Yep. She's a little obviously intimidated by him doing that. But when he breaks and just hugs her and kisses her, I think in that moment she understands, you know, this was... This is some this is something he needed to do, you know. We're not advocating this obviously as a podcast, but we're understanding that what she how she saw it eventually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, people are complicated things, and if we yeah. if we expected humans to be perfect top to bottom, our movies would be pretty boring. Yeah, I, think. I agree. Uh, and also, of course, you have the great little button of mom's reaction to seeing what's <laughs> happening here. Um, they did this scene and the script supervisor comes up to George Capra and says, listen, they, they've got to do it again. They dropped a whole, a whole page of dialogue and Capra went, basically, you're crazy. <laughs> this was take one. Done. They didn't do it again. <laughs> wow. That's great. Yep. That's a lot of intensity for one take. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance. And it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of both of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. And then we immediately cut to, because it's such a perfectly uh, constructed, no time-wasting movie, we cut to the wedding. And what's so amazing is you see all the people that are there. You see Mr. Gower there. You see that Violet catches the bouquet. You see that, you know, Mary's mom is not happy with this. Yeah. Um, by the way, they're not just getting rice thrown over them. They are getting pelted with rice. Mm. <laughs> There's a lot of rice. And uh, they run out into the pouring rain, and we're left with George's mom and Annie. First Harry, now George. Annie, we're just two old maids now. You speak for yourself, Miss B. <laughs> I love their relationship. Yeah. We're in the cab. We're heading off as he pulls out this huge wad of money. 
and says, We're going to shoot the works. A whole week in New York, a whole week in Bermuda, the highest hotels, the oldest champagne, the richest caviar, the hottest music, and the prettiest wife. So they're fi- George's finally going to get out of town, and he's finally going to have some fun. Don't look now, but there's something funny going on over there at the bank, George. I've never really seen one, but that's got all the earmarks of being a run. They would have made it out of town if they shut his goddamn mouth. Yep. But then again... They might not have had a Bedford Falls to come back to if Ernie doesn't open his mouth. And you mentioned something earlier. Well, George doesn't choose a thing. This is a choice. This choice does here. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and she and and Mary wants him to go. Mm-hmm. She's like, no, don't get out. He gets out, and there's this crowd standing in front of the building alone. And George, you know, is trying to play everything natural. Wow. Hello, everybody. Miss Thompson, how are you? Charlie, what's the matter here? Can't you get in? He opens up the gate. He lets them in. We see Billy drinking. Fucking Uncle Billy, man. God damn it. This is a pickle, George. This is a pickle. All right, now what happened? How did it start? Well, how does a thing like this ever start? All I know is the bank called our loan. When? About an hour ago, I handled all, all our cash. All of it? Every cent of it and still was less than we owed. Holy mackerel. <laughs> That's where I wrote down. Fucking Uncle, Uncle Billy. Uncle Billy. <laughs> there must have been a way to stall the bank. There's a hall of fame of like just frustrating family members. Grandpa John and Uncle Billy are both like the Charter Hallmark, Hall of Fame rather, Charter Hall of Fame members for sure. Uh, what's uh, 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 in Rocky, uh, Burt Young, uh, Paul? uh, Polly. Polly's another one. <laughs> oh, yeah, Polly, definitely. Right at this moment, Potter calls. George, there is a rumor around town that you've closed your doors. Is that true? And he offers to get some police to deal with the mobs. And, and then he says, George, I am going all out to help in this crisis. I have just guaranteed the bank sufficient funds to meet their needs. They will close up for a week and then reopen. Just took over the bank. So here's something I want to point out that that it I didn't understand until I was really uh, reading a book called uh, Pound, Pound Foolish, I think, mm-hmm. which was about the investment industry and investment uh, advisors and things like that. And what I really didn't get, and this is a perfect example of economic crises are tragedies for the poor and opportunities yeah. for the rich. Of course. Look at what happened during COVID. Yep. Bezos got three times richer during COVID as people were losing their jobs. People were having to work from home. People were dying. Yep. Um, they get more, they got richer and paid their people even less. Yep. So, yeah. I mean, there, because, and there's so many reasons for it, like, and during COVID, one of them was, well, let's make zero interest rates. So money is really cheap. Well, for rich people, that's opportunity right? for them to get richer. Yep. Because one of the big reasons is, is that rich people can weather the storm. Right. So if, if you, you know, two people make a thousand dollar investment in a thing and one of those two people has an extra hundred thousand dollars sitting around and the other one doesn't, and both of them get a health problem and have to miss work for three weeks. Yeah. Well, the person who who doesn't have any money, they have to sell that investment, even if it's even if it's at a loss. And the person who has lots of money, they'll buy that investment for five hundred dollars, and now they have twice as much. Yeah. Oh, you never miss a trick, do you, Potter? Well, you're gonna miss this one. If you close your doors before six p.m., you will never reopen. And George looks up, hanging on the wall is a picture of Dad, and written below the picture it says, "All you can take with you is what you've given away." Once again, Dad coming through. Yep. And he goes out, scene after, these are fantastic scene after fantastic scene. Yeah. 
I mean, because that scene, scene with him and Mary in the phone is one of the great scenes in all movies. It's so's this. Yeah. Just remember that this thing isn't as black as it appeared. And right at that moment, a siren hits, and they all go and look at the window. Just to contrast with what he just said. I bet Potter <clears throat> sent that police car to go sure. by there, maybe to mess with him, yeah. I just talked to old man Potter, and he's guaranteed cash payments to the bank. The bank's going to reopen next week. But, George, I got my money here. Did he guarantee this place? Well, no, Charlie, I didn't even ask him. We don't need Potter over here. And I'll take mine now. It's funny. This is the speech that taught me how banks works, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. The money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house. That's right next to yours. And in the Kennedy house and Mrs. Maitland's house and a hundred others. Uh, you're lending them the money to build and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do? Foreclose on them? Seems like a good system. Yeah, seems like. Tom wants his $242. Tom is a dick. At least here he's a dick. I mean, him asking for his money when he knows, you know. Well, particularly after the next part of the speech, yeah. you know, because first he's like, well, you can have your money in 60 days. Just fill out the form. He's like, no, I need the money now. Yeah. And then right as this happens, a guy comes in and says, Old man Potter will pay 50 cents on the dollar for every share you got. 50 cents on the dollar? Yes, cash. I almost think that Potter gave that guy an extra couple of bucks to go into the building and load his savings. I would put money on that as well. Absolutely. Yep. Um, you know, like like um, George says to him on the phone just a few seconds in the, before in the scene, you don't miss a trick, do you, Potter? So, you know, he, he knows exactly how Potter's going to coordinate this whole thing for sure. If Potter gets a hold of this building and alone, there'll never be another decent house built in this town. He's already got charge of the bank. He's got the bus line. He got the department stores. And now he's after us. Why? Well, it's very simple because we're cutting in on his business. That's why. Because he wants to keep you living in his slums and paying the kind of rent he decides. And then we hear about what it was like to live in one of Potter's slums. Don't you see what's happening? Potter isn't selling, Potter's buying. And why? Because we're panicky and he's not, that's why. Now, we, we can get through this thing, all right? We, we've got to stick together, though. We've got to have faith in each other. That line is all of Capra. Yeah. Right there. Wow, it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean that you know you whether it's whether it's meet John Doe or Mr. Smith or Mr. Deeds, yeah. we get through this. We got to have faith in each other. We get through it together. Yeah. And then you hear, and this is the you know, this is the truth of so many people living in the world. But my husband hasn't worked in over a year, and I need money. How am I going to live until the bank opens? I got doctor bills to pay. I need cash. And then Mary says, "How much do you need?" Hey. I got $2,000. Shout out to Mary, though, who comes in with that money because I don't think Violet would have done that. Mary does it. Mary understands George. But she may not want to do it. She knows it's what needs to be done, which is great. Of course Violet wouldn't have done it. There's no <laughs> question. Violet has already spent half of that money. Probably <laughs> true. Probably. So you know what I thought about with this money? What's that? If George had invested in Sam Wainwright's company. Oh man. The building of loan. No, but the building of loan dies because oh, he, course. this is the 2000, this is the money that they have. Right. Right. They right, wouldn't right. have this money if he had made that investment. Oh, good point. Good point. Okay. Um, and just, I mean, Mary to the rescue. The, the, the other thing about it too, about Mary is what part of this is, is this is her moment of saying I'm on team George Bailey. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you. Right. <laughs> Tom still wants his $242. Oh, Tom, for fuck's sake. Yeah, seriously, Tom. Tom. And read the, the room, Tom. Read the room. That'll close my account. Your account's still here. That's a loan. 
Okay. All right, Ed. Well, I got $300 here, George. All right, now, Ed, what'll it take until the bank opens? What, what do you need? Well, I, I suppose $20. $20. Now you're talking. And then I love that someone in the crowd said, but it's your money, George. Yeah. Because this isn't the building loan money. This is his no. life savings. And then <laughs> the next woman comes up. It's Miss Davis. Her line was supposed to be $20. Oh. And Capra went up and said, whispered to her, ask for seventeen fifty, <laughs> without telling Jimmy Stewart. All right, Miss Davis. Could I have seventeen fifty? Jimmy Stewart kisses her. That's his improv. That wasn't ever supposed oh, to happen. Wow. That's his response to seventeen fifty. That's it's a great moment. And then it's later on, and we have made it with $2 left, and everyone is toasting and celebrating, and they have a little parade over to the safe, and... And then they hand out cigars, and it goes, wedding cigars. Wedding cigars? Oh, wedding. Holy mackerel, I'm married. <laughs> I mean, it's obvious that he's like, had the day was just a total blur. Oh, yeah, of course. He's been there yeah. the whole time. Mary, hello. Listen, dear, I'm sorry. Huh? Come home. What home? 320 Sycamore. Well, what? Whose home's that? The Waldorf Hotel, huh? And again, it's like scene after great scene after great scene. Because yeah. this, their honeymoon, their wedding night scene is a fantastic. Because he gets to, what is the Waldorf Hotel? What's at 320 Sycamore? The old Granville house. Yeah. And we see lights on and we see Bert with some other guy putting up posters of tropical places and amazing travel. And George walks up the path and we hear the music and we see a sign that says bridal suite on the door. And there is Ernie with the top hat. Hiya, uh, good evening, sir. <laughs> and George starts to walk in. And again, the scene would be great without all these extra little gags, but the hat gag mm -hmm. is so funny, which is, is. Er Ernie leans his head back against the wall that makes his hat tip up. And he's got his hand out like it's for a tip. <laughs> and George looks down and the water pours off of his hat into George, into uh, Ernie's hand. Great movies are all these little tiny details. That's what makes them great. Yeah, agreed. And we go inside and see the world that Mary has created for their wedding night. What do you think of this? It's beautiful. It's really sweet. Um, clearly, once again, Mary understanding what George might need before George knows what he needs. Right. And again, yep. as I've said, she's, she's just more, she just understands, she gets it and she understands it. And it's not about, Oh, her being subservient to her man. It's nothing at all. No she loves him. And when you love someone, you understand what they need at the end of a hard day, especially when they had all these plans to leave. And once again, George is denied the chance to leave Bedford falls to go visit the world. And so she wants to, you know, make it feel like home to him when he comes to this area. And clearly she has an ulterior motive that she does want to move into this grand. She wants this house. Yeah. But, but, but she, cause she's going like, I know what you've lost. I know what you gave up. Look at what we're going to create together. Look yeah. what, look at the world that I want to create with you. And all, again, you know, the details of the, she's in a beautiful dress. The table looks beautiful. He looks around. I love, I love that the are chickens rotating on a rotisserie over the fire and that rotisserie is being powered by the record player. Mm. And I love too, that he's panning, the camera's panning as George is looking around the room, that it goes into the bedroom and the wedding bed. And that's where we pause. I think yeah. that is, you know, 
a very, very clear hint of like they're going to have sex on their wedding night in that bed and that he's thinking about it. Yeah. You see the posters and her smile is just amazing. And she says, welcome home, Mr. Bailey. <laughs> I love that he tries to talk and Ernie just pushes him into the room and they kiss. And at the end of the record, the music is replaced by Bert and Ernie serenading them from the outside. I love you truly, truly dear. And this is when she reveals to him that when they broke the window on this house, this is how she cursed him, wished for. This is what she wished for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then again, you get a little button on the scene, which is Bert and Ernie finish the song, and Ernie plants a kiss on Bert's forehead and he hits him in the head. It's, uh, it's a perfect scene. Yeah, it's a very sweet scene. I would say, of all the vignettes, and this is not saying it's bad, I would mm-hmm. say this next story is probably the weakest of all the ones we've had. Okay, but it's still it's still great. It's uh, we're with Martini. And they're moving out of their house and mm. they pile into George's car, which, by the way, is a 1919 Dodge. I, lo- I love this Ooh. car. Wow. And, and a goat gets into the car with them. And Martini says, I own the house. Uh, Me, Giuseppe Martini, I own my own house. No more we live like a pigs in this Paris field. One more. And you know what I thought about that I never thought about until watching it this time? Capra comes from an Italian immigrant family. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is the Capras. Oh, maybe. You know, yeah, very on possible. some level. And we get to Bailey Park. Yeah. And Bailey Park, the Capra had the idea, well, there are all these houses being built right now. This is the post-World War II housing boom. Let's go to a real housing development. Hmm. So this Bailey Park is actually La Cañada, just a few miles north oh. of where I am. Wow. And this housing development is still there, and Martini's house is still there. Wow, that's great. It'd be cool to live in. I mean, you know, just that what a kind of special movie sure. connection. Sure. I don't really like Martini's house that much, but <laughs> but still. I think you'd hate it because everyone would be coming over all the time taking pictures of the house. Oh my God, I'd hate that so you much. You see? You're right. <laughs> like the people who own the Breaking Bad house in New Mexico, people throw pizzas on their roofs all the time, on their roof all the time as an homage yeah. to Breaking Bad. It's like, God damn it, stop it. And we get this lovely speech, which you can tell he and Mary have made this speech over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Every time they build a new house and they have this moment where this is an interesting one is that the martinis, uh, Mr. Martini crosses himself as they get their house. Yeah. The studio wanted them to take out them crossing themselves because it was too religious. Wow. Capra apparently said nuts to you. How can that be possible when you literally start out with God in the opening frame of your movie? I mean, that's essentially God. Uh, and now we cut to Potter, who's talking to his rent collector, who's basically saying, the Baileys are kicking your ass. Look, Mr. Potter, it's no skin off my nose. I'm just your little rent collector. But you can't laugh off this Bailey Park anymore. I love this guy. Very short scene. We never see him again, I think, yep. until maybe the end. I don't know if he's in that house tossing money, but he is fantastic here. He's so good. The actor's name is Charlie Lane. He's in, ton- I think he's like in every Capra movie and he's in tons of stuff. Really? Um, oh yeah, he, tons and tons of stuff. And what he, he basically says is. Dozens of the prettiest little homes you ever saw. 90% owned by suckers who used to pay rent to you. Your potter's field, my dear Mr. Employer, is becoming just that. By the way, a potter's field is a common name. A, it's uh, biblical because it's where Judas Iscariot either hung himself or was buried. Yeah. 
And then a potter's field is like a common name for uh, a poor folks cemetery. Oh, yeah. It's like okay. we'll bury him out in potter's field. And are the local yokels making with those David and Goliath wisecracks? Oh, they are, are they? I think that one really gets to Potter. Yeah. He doesn't like this image. It's no skin off my nose. But one of these days, this bright young man's going to be asking George Bailey for a job. Potter is pissed and says, Bailey family's been a boil on my neck long enough. Uh, we're back with George and we're talking to Sam Wainwright and maybe his wife. Seems like. Yeah, yeah. the contrast between the 1919 Dodge driven by the Baileys and the Duesenberg limo owned by the Wainwrights is a pretty big deal. Mm. Duesenbergs are one of the coolest cars okay. ever. I mean, just they're, they're the ridiculously super long super luxurious limos and they drive away and George kicks the door of his car. Which I think is a great scene here because Sam is clearly in the luxury. George didn't invest. Yep. So it's even more of a reminder of George's poverty in essence and him deciding to take on this building loan. Cause I'm sure remember he told his dad, I want to make my first million before I'm 25 or 35. Uh, And so he had all these dreams, all these goals, seeing people who succeed at the things that you wanted to succeed at, but you know, you took different paths. It's great. And certainly there, I love that Capra lingers on them as they walk in silence back to their car. They don't make fun of Sam. They don't make little inside jokes with each other. There's a real kind of um, feeling from George's side that there's a frustration here financially. And Mary's just kind of letting it linger for now. And him kicking the door is once again George grabbing Mary. Like that's he's got the propensity to react a little bit like a, you know, in frustration or a little bit of a spoiled child kind of reaction, you know. So I, I'm really glad you focused on this because it's such an important moment. And listen, I'm going to assume that just about everyone listening has had that experience where there's that person that's gotten farther than you. Yeah. And you're you know, and maybe you think that you deserved it more and maybe you're jealous or maybe you don't like the way they've handled it. Or maybe you're just look suddenly looking at your life going, why the fuck am I still here? Like what, yeah. you know, I, we've all had that, those feelings yeah. and they're hard, you know? Yeah. That's why. And I think, you know, you've made this, you made a great point of like, the, there's deep darkness in this movie. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know? All throughout, all through. Yeah. 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 So, George is having a meeting with Mr. Potter. Yeah. And I love, by the way, that the chair George sits in is like a foot lower. Of course. (laughs) That's classic. That's classic office stuff. Uh, Lionel Barrymore has some serious, serious makeup on. And the image that Capra had in his head for Barrymore was he wanted uh, American Gothic, like the farmer from American Gothic. Mm. And uh, he also just wanted him to have a huge head. And so they built up his forehead by almost two inches. Wow. Uh, yeah. And if you look at a picture, like look at other pictures of Lionel Barrymore, he doesn't look like this. Yeah, that's a good point. He doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I love, by the way, that there's a portrait of Mr. Potter in the background, basically looking exactly the way he looks right now. Of course. You know just as well as I do that I run practically everything in this town, but the Bailey building alone. You know also that for a number of years I've been trying to get control of it or kill it, but I haven't been able to do it. You have been stopping me. In fact, you have beaten me, George. And as anyone in this county can tell you, that takes some doing. 
Is there any moment where any human watching this uh, trusts or believes Mr. Potter at all? I hope not. Yes, yeah. he is absolutely snowing him. Now, I have stated my side very frankly. Now, let's look at your side. <laughs> Young man, 27, 28, married, making, say, 40 a week. 45. 45. Which, by the way, translates to about $47,000 a year today. Wow. That's, that's what George's salary is. Out of which, after supporting your mother and paying your bills, you're able to keep, say, ten if you skimp. A child or two comes along and you won't even be able to save the ten. Which I think is probably pretty accurate if you're yeah. talking about someone making 47000 a year today. Yeah, I would agree. You know, who's supporting their mom and, you know, pretty tough to get ahead. If this young man at 28 was a common, ordinary yokel, I say he was doing fine. But George Bailey is not the common, ordinary yokel. He is an intelligent, smart, ambitious young man who hates his job, who hates the building and loan almost as much as I do. Has Potter said anything that's not true? Well, initially, yes. But then in this section, no. By the way, who do you think called this meeting? Potter. Yeah. Absolutely. I think this is when he went... After hearing about the David and Goliath thing and from this rent taker yeah. and that he's losing people, he and saying the Baileys have been a boil on his neck, this is his new plan to destroy George Bailey. Why does George take the meeting? He's hung up on Potter. He's pushed Potter. He's rejected Potter. I mean, Why does he take it? Potter sits on the board of his business. It's, it's the most powerful guy in the town. It's kind of hard to say no to the meeting. All right. Fair enough. He says... And I do think what he's saying, everything he said is true. A young man who's been dying to get out on his own ever since he was born. A young man, the smartest one in the crowd, mind you. A young man who has to sit by and watch his friends go places because he's trapped. I think all of that is true. Yeah. I think, I think he, Potter totally has nailed George Bailey hmm. in a lot of ways. Trapped into frittering his life away, playing nursemaid to a lot of garlic eaters. <sighs> That's a strong comment. I mean, who does garlic eaters refer to in your mind? I don't want to say. I, I will say in this movie, Martini is the perfect example. Yeah, I guess so. Is that this is an Italian-American insult. Yeah. And the studio wanted Capra to take it out. And he, he basically said, I'm the Italian-American making this movie. Yeah. You cannot take this out. Right, right. Because this is what his family experienced. Right. I'm, I bet he was yeah. called this, you know? Of course, I'm sure. Well, it's funny, not that this is related, but you brought this up, you know, earlier about the Blade Runner thing. It's like, mm. this has to stay in the movie. The bads, we have to show the bad parts of humans. Of course. Of course. You know? makes the movie so good. Well, what's your point, Mr. Potter? My point? My point is I want to hire you. Hire me? Yeah, I want you to manage my affairs, run my properties. George, I'll start you out at $20,000 a year. Want to hear the math on this one? No, go ahead. So if George is making forty-five a week, he is currently making $2,340 a year. Potter is offering him $20,000 a year, almost 10 times his current salary, wow. which is almost a half a million dollars a year today. Wow. This is a big, big offer that Potter's yeah. making. You wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town, buying your wife a lot of fine clothes, a couple of business trips to New York a year, maybe once in a while Europe. You wouldn't mind that, would you, George? Would I? Let me ask you a question. Yeah. If George agrees to this deal, uh -huh. does Potter have any intention of honoring it? Yes. 
But George will lose everything in terms of friendship. Mary might leave him. And I think um, Potter will use this to grind out every single speck of rebellion in his soul and turn him into an alcoholic or some sort of depressive. So this that's the exchange that you don't see coming down the road for taking the money now. I think he would honor it just to be able to fuck with George until the end of time. I agree with everything you said, except mm-hmm. I don't think he's going to honor it. I think he is going to, I think he's, there's something in the contract that he is going to be able to get out of it after a year. And I even think to the point where he's going to put George in a position that George tears up the contract. No, oh, maybe. Because he wants to destroy George Bailey. Except George is too smart for that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Well, Mr. Potter, I, I, I know I ought to jump at the chance, but I, I just, uh, I, I wonder if it would be possible for you to give me 24 hours to think it over. Sure, sure, sure. And he goes to shake hands. And when he shakes hands, he looks at his hand after. You think Mr. Potter had a bit of a sweaty palm? <laughs> maybe, maybe. And and you could yeah. see it. You, you could see the change because, again, great. Jimmy Stewart's an incredible actor. So, and I love the way he delivers this line because he he knows it's the right thing. And he is so angry at himself. Yes. Probably that, suckered in. Yes. Well, it's not just that. He's angry that he has to say no. I don't need 24 hours. I, I don't have to talk to anybody. I know right now. And the answer is no, no. Doggone it. Oh. Because he's losing all that money. I don't think I've ever. Oh, yeah. I totally think You that. think so? I don't. Absolutely. Think so. okay. well, I mean, if you had, if so, if someone offered you the, sp- as the, a million dollar a year job as the spokesperson for something you hate. Mm-hmm. I mean, could you have be a moment? Damn it. Like, uh, I can't take that job. If you, you know, I don't know if that's, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of tough, but I, I, the situation here is in my opinion, what I have always seen it is just him reacting to the fact that he let Potter lure him in. And I think, oh, because, I think that's true. Yeah. I, but I, I think that's the only thing I see here. And it's because, and he let himself get lured in because we had that scene with Sam Wainwright. And, exactly. And, and so he is in a desperate place and he's in a hungry place for money. So he goes to Potter. Potter, Potter offers him this, but he turns it down and he's mad. He's mad at Potter and he's mad at himself. I don't think he's mad about losing the money. I think he's mad about that, that Potter would trick him into the situation. And he's mad at himself that he was stupid enough to fall into the trap. Uh, that he had told so many people not to fall into with Potter. So that's that's where I see it. But, you know, again, we, we just are two different points of views on this. You sit around here and you spin your little webs and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. In the, in the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you were nothing but a scurvy little spider. Yeah. There are a few people I'd like to give that speech to. <laughs> um and, and I love too that in his anger he's just like yells at the you know the guy pushing the wheelchairs valet or whatever and that goes for you too and then opens up the door to the bank and it goes for you too. Poor woman coming in just <laughs> is probably deathly afraid of losing her job coming in with yeah. all this stuff for Potter. And he's home and Mary's asleep and we hear those lines from earlier in the movie about the things he wanted to do about traveling. We hear him talk about building things. 
we see the George Lasso's the moon and we hear the speech that he gives to her. Why in the world do you ever marry a guy like me? What do you keep from being an old maid? Which that term old maid we're going to revisit later on, which is one of my few problems with the movie. I married Sam Wainwright and anybody else in town. I didn't want to marry anybody else in town. I want my baby to look like you. And he doesn't quite hear her at first. And then he goes, You're what? My baby. Mary, you you on the nest? (laughs) Which is a funny expression. George Bailey Lasso Stork. What what is it, a boy or a girl? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's great. Very cute scene. And then we get uh, a montage to just kind of advance time. We find out they had a whole bunch of kids. And, and, and by the way, here's one of the things that was going on at this time, which is Donna Reed had gotten married and she and her husband had decided to adopt. Oh. And the kid de- they decided to adopt was in Chicago. And so she and her husband had to fly to Chicago. And so she begged Capper to give her two days off of the shoot so she could fly and bring home their baby. Wow. And you want to know what scene they shot the day that Mary got back from picking up her baby? What one? The scene with her having the baby. Uh. The new baby scene was that that was the first thing she shot after she had gotten her own baby. That's hilarious. Then came a war. And again, it's a montage where we see, you know, that Ma Bailey and Mrs. Hatch were helping at the Red Cross and Mary worked for the USO and Sam Wainwright made a fortune. Of course. Then we also hear that Bert was wounded in North Africa and got the Silver Star, which means that Bert might have served under General Patton. Oh, yeah. Oh, good connective tissue there. Yeah. And Ernie parachuted in Germany. Marty helped capture a bridge. I mean, the Bedford Falls guys are all heroes. They are. That CGI is pretty terrible, though. But yeah. Harry Bailey topped them all. A Navy flyer, he shot down 15 planes, two of them as they were about to crash into a transport full of soldiers. As we're seeing this, we're seeing all this battle footage. Yeah. You know who probably shot all this footage? Capra, probably, right? Or the people working for him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, One of them. Uh, And then we see that because George was 4F that he did all this work on the home front. I love this montage because it reminds me of a a Looney Tunes montage. when they. Yeah. Yeah. But George coming in with the whistle and the lights out. I mean, that's it's like Tweety Bird. Lights out. And but him like accidentally spitting on himself or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's just it's a great little awkward moment for George. But Potter being charged of the draft board is perfect, right? Yeah. The one person you don't want to have in charge who's probably going to take no excuse and want everybody to go to war is Potter. So it, it just all of it works so well for all the different things that they do. And to keep the narratives going on each of the heroes and each of the villains in the, in the piece. So, yeah. And then we hear as we're getting to the end of the war. On V-Day, he wept and prayed. On VJ day he wept and prayed again. It, and this is now, we've gone an hour and 17 minutes in order to get to the present day. Yeah. So it's it's largely a flashback. By the way, we have this establishing shot of the town in winter. And if you look really closely at the beginning of the establishing shot, standing in front of the bank are Jimmy Stewart and Thomas Mitchell. <laughs> because this establishing shot is actually from when they were searching around outside to find the money that that Uncle Billy lost. And if you watch it really carefully, what's interesting is so clear to me yeah. that they say action in the shot. Because they're standing <laughs> totally still. 
and then they go into movement the way that actors do when you say action. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and then George also happens to be talking to uh, Ernie because there's a big newspaper where we see that Harry is winning the Congressional Medal of Honor. Yeah. So we might have both said that he kind of acted like a dick, but he is a war hero. Well, he clearly matured in the military. So. Yeah. Um, but by the way, this might have been based on a guy named Edward O'Hara, who was a naval pilot who shot down five Japanese fighters in one mission. Wow. And won the Congressional Medal of Honor, came home to receive it, and then went back to war and was almost immediately killed in combat. Jesus. Jesus. Um, and do you want to know uh, what city he was from? Seneca Falls? Well, have you ever flown into Chicago? Yes. Then you have flown into O'Hare Airport. Yes. Was named for Edward O'Hare, winner of the Congressional Medal of Honor. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. That makes sense. Okay. I didn't know that either. <laughs> um, and uh, George is just beaming with excitement, handing out papers to Mr. Gower. And we see that A, Bedford Falls is dressed up for Christmas. You want to know where they got their Christmas decorations? Where? Well, this is the middle of summer, so the city of Glendale was not using their annual Christmas decorations. <laughs> this is the city of Glendale's Christmas decorations. That's nice. Smart. And the other thing we see is big welcome home Harry Bailey yeah. signs because there's going to be a huge, huge celebration. He goes into the building alone, and we also hear that the bank examiner is here. Carter, bank examiner. Uh, we're all excited around here. My brother just got the Congressional Medal of Honor. The president just decorated If you want to know how to efficiently nail a character... <laughs> this is the how you do it because the bank examiner's response to that is yeah well i guess they do those things <laughs> that's one line for yeah. this guy and we already know what kind of guy he is george is almost taken aback too for yeah. just a second he's like what the okay all right well, i trust you had a good year good year uh well between you and me mr carter we're broke yeah very funny uh is that true by the way i don't know but Probably close to broke if they're if eight thousand dollars sends them yep. into a tizzy like this. Yeah, and by the way, they're having a collect call with Harry, and the bank examiner is like, "Well, no wonder you're having this collect call." Yeah. Cut, cut to Uncle Billy counting his cash as he fills out his deposit slip at the bank this. for eight thousand dollars, which is a hundred and twenty thousand in today's dollars. Wow! So maybe they're not broke. Well. But the thing, just because they're making a deposit of $120,000 doesn't mean they're not broke. I mean, because okay. it's all about the balance sheet, you know. That's true. That's true. Um, but clearly they have at least $120,000 in cash that they're dealing with. The idea that you would trust Uncle Billy with $120,000 in cash. That's, that's a a great point, right? I mean, maybe he's done other deposits, so you think he's all right. But I would have sent Alice. I would have sent... Uh, homie with the weird glasses, I would have sent him over Uncle Billy. I might have sent the crow over Uncle Billy, I'll be honest with you. I mean, the guy couldn't remember George's wedding. The guy can't remember anything. He is a, he screws up. And people like gonna be, People are going to be mad at me when I say this, but this is what happens when you give people who have a, a track record of not doing so well, when you're nice to them and let them do too many things, this is what eventually happens. So you don't want to do that because you get fucked in the end. Well, this is, I mean, again, we go back to like all this weird enabling behavior is yeah. that George comes in and, and rescues everyone. This yeah. is not actually necessarily a good thing for Uncle Billy. Yeah, like, true, true. I mean, I mean, I have the most money in cash I've carried. I've carried a few thousand bucks in mm. cash. Mm. Do you imagine walking around with 120 grand in your pocket? Mm. No, nor do I ever want to imagine that. 
Um, and in comes Mr. Potter in his wheelchair, and Uncle Billy's got to go up and gloat. He's gloating. Good morning, Mr. Potter. What's the news? Oh, well, 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 Harry Bailey wins Congressional Medal. That couldn't be one of the Bailey boys. You just can't keep those Baileys down. Now, can you, Mr. Potter? And as he is doing this, he's taken that envelope and folded it inside the newspaper, which he then hands back yeah. to Potter. Oh, Uncle Billy. Just a big dunce. And goes up to the teller, and the teller says, I, I guess you forgot something. What? Well, aren't you going to make a deposit? Oh, sure, sure I am. <laughs> well, then it's usually customary to bring the money with you. And I like that even the teller points to one of the strings on his fingers and says, how about that finger there? Like, everybody knows Uncle Billy is a mess. In his office, Potter finds the money, looks back outside, sees Uncle Billy looking through the trash, and does nothing. Yeah. Now, this is a crime. Yes, he has stolen the money. He yes. willingly knew he had the money. Yeah. And this is how pathetic and desperate Potter... This is actually the smallest Potter looks in the whole movie. Oh, yeah. To take that money. To, in that way, to rob someone in that way, in a desperate desire to get the best of them and put them out of business. That's dirty. I mean, you can play roughhouse in, in business, but that that is a crime, what he did. And he should mm -hmm. have gone to jail and died an old man in jail. No, it's we don't know what happens afterwards. It's huge. Well, the movie ends before we deal with any of that. Well, there's uh, the SNL sketch, but never mind. Anyway, I ahead. love that. SNL. I watched it again as I was preparing for this. This is the the additional ending, and I think it's Dana Carvey is Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, and John Lovitz is Potter, which is great. Uh, it's a great. It's a, we'll put we'll put a link up for it, please. Yeah. And then as Billy runs into the office, uh, totally panicked. Yeah, uh, Violet is there who wants to talk to George. And by the way, as Billy runs in, the Raven Jim the Raven lands on his arm. That was apparently a very impressive uh, bit of animal training. Wow, to get that to happen. Uh, and we cut to George and Violet in his office and he's putting something in an envelope. And what I later found out is that's a letter of recommendation for her. If I had any character. Oh, it takes a lot of character to leave your hometown, start all over again. And he offers her some money and she says she tries to refuse. Now here, now, you're broke, aren't you? I know, but. What do, what do you want to do? Hawk your furs, not a hat? You know what I wrote down? Yes, she should hawk her furs and her hat. <laughs> You shouldn't, and then again, it's all this enabling behavior. It's like, George, she, she obviously has done poorly, you know, made bad choices with her money, she bought expensive furs that she can't afford, and now you're giving her more money. This is not a good plan. Um, it, it's such a hard thing because I 100% believe in helping people out when they're down and being sure, compassionate sure. and being caring. And I also go, there's, you know, and again, it comes from experiences in my life where like, mm -hmm. oh, I probably should have stopped helping. Yeah. At a certain point, and I didn't. Yeah. And it didn't do any good for anybody. I'm glad I know you, George Bailey. And gives him a kiss, which the bank examiner sees or sees her wiping the lipstick off. Yeah. And George goes over to Uncle Billy, and Billy is on the floor, panicked, yeah. searching for the money. And then we cut to it's later, it's Billy's house where animals are everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's squirrels and all sorts of things going on. It's a hoarder. And, yeah, totally. And George is now transformed. Yeah. And George grabs him by the sweater. Pretty scary. And did you put the envelope in your pocket? Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe. 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 I don't want any. Maybe. We've got to find that money. And and Billy is completely falling apart. Yeah. 
Yeah. And he has, and again, little details and lines. Someplace you hide them, are you? I'm over the whole house, even in rooms that have been licensed. I lost Laura. That's like a whole lifetime of a line. What, yeah. Who's right. Laura? Who's Laura? Right, exactly. I think Laura was his wife. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Who died. And I, one of the things I wonder is when Peter Bailey and his brother Billy founded the building and loan 25 years ago, mm-hmm. was Billy a mess? No. I don't think so either. Yeah. I think after Laura died. I think it's when Laura died. Maybe they died in a car accident and Billy was kind of messed up from the car accident and George kept, or uh, Peter kept him on because he's his brother. And George grabs him, lifts him up and says, Where's that money, you silly, stupid old fool? Where's that money? Do you realize what this means? It means bankruptcy and scandal and prison. That's what it means. One of us is going to jail. Well, it's not going to be me. And he throws him back down. Two things occur to me as I watch this thing, especially after our conversation, right? With this, he has a propensity to go physical, George does, right? Which is a bit unsettling in certain moments. The second part of this is, this is Jimmy Stewart post the war. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if, you know, a darkness, which ends up leading to other roles that he does. Yeah, Vertigo and, yeah. Right, and then going into the Westerns, which also have yep. really dark edges to them as well. If this is Jimmy affected by the war, you know, the Jimmy we saw before the war with your Philadelphia story and all these things, rarely saw him play the darker roles. But in this and in Rear Window, Vertigo, all these things, he's attracted to the darker stuff. Yes, maybe because he's gotten older and so there's more gray area and so there's these kinds of things, but also because it seems like this is something that he has inside of him because he plays these moments so well, so believably. Not that he grabs people. I just mean like he has this understanding of it. And so I think maybe that's an experience, a residue from the war as well. I think it's, I think it's certainly possible. Mm. Here's, here's my question about this. Mm. When he calls Uncle Billy a stupid, silly old fool, mm. is this the first time he's had this thought? No. Hell no. He has had that thought many, many times because George is a frustrated guy who has been imprisoned by the situations that have occurred in his life and his and his impulse to be the person who does the right thing. I, I think he has thought this. I think this is real truth coming oh, out at this moment. 100%. And it's not that you kiss. And this is the thing. And this is why this is a great film. It's not that George doesn't love his Uncle Billy. Nope. He to, You can totally love somebody yeah. and be frustrated as hell and see their shortcomings and sometimes want to blow up on them. And the other thing is, when you keep your own emotions down year yep, after year after right, year, they're, right. they're more likely to explode. And George has been like, I got to be the best person. I got to be the best yeah. person. I got to be the best person. And now we've reached the explosion. Yeah. I'm sure Mary has told him many times, uh, we got, you know, remember what happened? You got to, when he lost Laura, things changed. Think about these things. I'm sure she's calmed him down many a night when he's come home after one of Billy's stupid decisions or stupid actions and been frustrated, but not told him about it. And she's had to calm him down about it, I'm sure. But yeah, in that moment, absolutely 100% agree with you, Steve. She, He is absolutely letting out the truth. And the way Capra lights this is beautiful. There's a darkness here. There's just one light in the room, all the animals around, which would look cute in the daytime, but looks real menacing and and unsettling and it's crazy. Weird, yeah. night. It's almost like the beginning of Citizen Kane with the monkeys hanging around mm. the, you know, the kind of rotted out canoes and, and the water and stuff so you have that vibe when you see this so i think he does an excellent job in terms of the lighting of this scene to give you the mood of what you're experiencing well darkness 
And the and Uncle Billy that gets left behind when George walks out is yeah. just destroyed. He's broken. Yeah. Totally broken. Well, and I think too, how many times in the last decade do you think Mary has said, No, George, we really need to get away. Let's take a vacation. Let's take you need oh, some time. Right, right. Over and over again. And I don't and there was always because this is the thing, and this is what's so hard. There's always always more work that you should be doing. There's always more right. stuff. There's always reasons that you don't take time for yourself because there always will be, you know. But also, if I go, who's in charge to build no more way? Billy. Billy's gonna fuck the whole thing up. I yep. can't even leave because Billy's incompetent. Yeah. And the, the stupid, silly old fool has yeah. prevented me from yeah. yeah. You know, because and it's not he's not just angry at Billy, he's angry at Harry, he's angry at his dad for dying, he's angry at Mr. Potter, he's angry at all he's got. He's got a lot of anger in him. Yeah, he does. All right. <laughs> the next scene, again, it's scene after great scene after great scene. This is one of the most stressful scenes in all of movies. I put this up with like the last act of Goodfellas in a way Ooh. of how stressful walking into his house yeah. with Janie repeatedly playing the out-of-tune piano. Did you bring the reed? Yes, I did. Did you bring the Christmas reed? What reed? Was it the Merry Christmas wreath with the window? No, I was left at the office. Is it snowing? Yeah, it just started. Well, where's your coat and hat? Left him at the office. He sits down with his kid, and the way he embraces him and pretty much weeps on him. It actually kind of reminds me of Roy Scheider and Jaws with his kid coming home that day. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Again, Donna Reed plays it perfectly, and the cuts to her are perfect of her observing what's going on with George. Yeah. Must she keep playing that? And and by the way, being a uh, a man with a kid, mm. I have come home and had because you most of the time as dad you have to put on the face. Yeah, you course. can't bring your crap home to your kid. You're dead. You know, you have to you have to deal with their crap. <laughs> and and again, it's the same thing of like George blowing up an uncle Billy. If you keep pushing it down forever, yeah, it'll explode. Daddy, the Browns next door have a new car. You should see it. Well, what's the matter with our car? Isn't it good enough for you? Yes, Daddy. And it's like, that was Sam Wainwright's car. And that was, he's he's still driving a 1919 Dodge. And then we hear that Zuzu is upstairs sick because she came home from school. The teacher had given her a flower and she didn't button her coat. And so she has a cold. George, what's wrong? Wrong everything, Troy. You call this a happy family. Why do we have to have all these kids? I mean, the guy's losing it. Yeah. Very mad at everything. Just he's machine gunning his anger all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and he starts to go upstairs. And as he does, he grabs the like uh, banister cap or the post cap, yeah. which comes off. And it's like, you'd think if you'd lived in this house for this long, you would know not to actually lift that thing up. And you see his anger just at that thing. That thing becomes symbolic. Yeah. And again, these are like things that we are going to repeat and then transform in classic structure. Yeah. Goes up to see Zuzu and he's really nice and sweet with her. And she has this flower that she wants to give a drink to and some petals has fallen off and he, she asks him to paste it. And again, this is the full dad move, which is he mm-hmm. turns away from her blocking her view in order to pretend to paste the petals back on while he stashes them in his pocket, hands them back to her. I love as he feels her forehead, maybe for her temperature, that the way he rests his hand there. Mm. Cause you can just see all the emotion going through that hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. 
comes downstairs and Mary is talking to Zuzu's teacher. Say, what kind of a teacher are you anyway? What do you mean sending her home like that half naked? You realize she'll probably end up with pneumonia on account of you? And you watch Mary trying to get the phone back. Is this the sort of thing we pay taxes for, to have teachers, have teachers like you, stupid, silly, careless people that send our kids home without any clothes on? You know, maybe my kids aren't the best dressed kids, and maybe they don't have any decent clothes. Oh, that's stupid. I was thinking about if this had happened in public today, and George yeah. Bailey had yelled at a teacher like this, someone would have recorded it with a phone, and it would be all over social media. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Is that George Bailey having a bad, the, one of the best people in the world, having the worst moment in, in the world, mm -hmm. made public, he looks like a horrible person. He does. Because he is horrible in this moment. Right. Hello, who's this? Oh, Mr. Welch. Okay, that's fine, Mr. Welch. Give me a chance to tell you what I really think of your wife. George, Will you George. get out and let me handle this? Hello, what? Oh, you will, huh? Okay, Mr. Welsh, anytime you think you're man enough, you... Hello? And, and again, the music is still being played. Dad, how do you spell hallelujah? How should I know? What do you think I am, a dictionary? Tommy, stop that, stop it. Janie, haven't you learned that silly tune yet? You play it over and over again. Now stop it, stop it! And there's this silence in the room, and then he just kicks over this display of this desk and bridge and things like that, where I think maybe he was building things because that's what he always wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a, you know, people have, like Mike Brady always had his architect stuff out on, yeah. on you know, it's kind of like that. It's just kind of a, something to play with while he's not around or while he's uh, taking a break or something. Yeah. And the moment of turning around and looking at his family and their faces. Because he tears it apart. Like he's, yeah. again, it's almost like Kane tearing apart totally. that room after Susan leaves him. He is kicking everything over and tearing it all up. And, you know, it's symbolic because in a way he's destroying his dreams, destroying his plans, destroying his future that he has always kind of clung on, clung to that there was a possibility of him still doing. He destroys it because remember, he's, as he says to Billy, he's grasping the possibility that he could go to jail. He could lose all this. You well, know? and you know what I hadn't thought about before, but it's like, not only is that going to happen, but that scandal is going to happen on the day his brother comes home with the Congressional oh, Medal of point. Honor. The embarrassment you know? of it, yeah. It's right. hugely embarrassing. And, and, and have the Bailey children or even Mary ever seen dad lose it like this? Probably not. I don't think so. Yeah. And he, it's, it's so hard because he realizes what he's done. I'm sorry, Mary. Janie, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I, you go on and practice. It's very formal, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. like, okay, now I have to apologize. Pete, I owe you an apology, too. No. And they don't move right away. Well, you're a dad. You know, yeah. I'm sure you've had the moment where you absolutely kind of lost control a little bit, and then you had to be like, I'm sorry. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I absolutely have. There, there, there honestly is no human who has made me lose my temper more than my son. <laughs> Even though I'm not a person... Son. Deeply, yeah, exactly. I do, yeah. but I'm not a person who loses my temper easily, no. and that kid knows how to get me to do it, and I have definitely apologized. Yeah. And then they're so freaked out, though, that they don't just go back, accept the apology, and go back to normal. What's the matter with everybody? Janie, go on. I told you to practice. Now go on, play. Oh, Daddy. And she bursts into tears, and Mary says, George, why must you torture the children? Why don't you? And just the stunned pained yeah. expression on Jimmy Stewart's face in this moment 
Yeah. And there's a great shot as he walks out and the camera kind of pans with him as he walks towards it. And then he even goes out of focus a little bit when it's really close. And it's super, super powerful. Well, clearly George is in need of some real professional therapy because there's a lot going on with George. He can't afford it, I guess. But well, it certainly exists. I mean, you know, in in the way it does today. But he certainly could use some because, you know, unleashing the anger, doing those kinds of things, it's not a it's not a good look. And I love the physical positioning that Mary does, right? Because she yanks, or not yanks, but she takes the children and they, in essence, form like a wall, you know, like a united front against George. And so George is looking at that, seeing that he's alienated his family. And that's really what. Uh, hurts him deeply you know and he's ashamed and instead of owning up to it sitting there and he tried to apologize but instead of like sitting there and trying to navigate the situation he runs out is daddy in trouble yes pete shall i pray for him yes jenny pray very hard she loves him she loves absolutely it's amazing what mary i mean mary's the hero of the movie george is nice mary's the hero of the movie for god's sake I think in terms of saving the day, 100%. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, George Bailey, I think, is a hero throughout the movie. Yeah. But Mary saves the day. Yeah. Well, and we got to give some to Clarence, too, you know? And now we're back at Potter sitting in that low chair, and he's explaining the situation. Could it possibly be there's a slight discrepancy in the books? No, sir. There's nothing wrong with the books. I've just misplaced $8,000. I can't find it anywhere. You misplaced $8,000. Yes, sir. What just happened there? In that moment... See, Potter had thought, well, I'm going to screw what's-his-face, Billy, and for gloating and, you know, get back at the building. Maybe I'll sink the building alone. Now, the fact that George has admitted falsely, by the way, because he's he's not telling the truth, that he misplaced $8,000, but he's, a, you know, he's, he's taking the hit for the team. He's the captain of the ship, so he's going to take yep. the hit for the team. Now Potter glimpses the possibility of like, oh, I can kill two birds with one stone, you know, um, destroy him and get my revenge for a lifetime of dealing with George Bailey and him getting the best of me and destroy the building alone and get my hands on everybody else's money. I think there's so much in this moment. I agree with all of that. I, Cause I also think it's like, what was the last thing he said to Billy? Someone's going to jail. It's not going to be me. Right. And now, even at his low point, and we are certainly at George Bailey's, you know, heading towards that low point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still not going to sell Uncle Billy out. Well, I think he wouldn't have sold. I think he might have considered selling Uncle Billy out until he exploded on his family and alien. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I think Potter, I think he has all the thoughts that you said. I also think he sees that. Like, wow, this guy, because I know he just lied to protect somebody else. Yeah. yeah. You know? What have you been doing, George? Um, playing the market with the company's money? No, sir. No, sir. I haven't. Oh, is it a woman then? Uh, you know, it's all over town that you've been giving money to Violet Bick. That's a fast. Who, who is spreading those rumors? Well, the crow? Was that the first time he gave Violet money? Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it was. Okay. Which, again, is it's just like beautifully constructed. Yeah. That that all of that is sort of coming together here. Mm-hmm. And we can't get a hold of Sam Wainwright because he's in Europe. And he goes, well, what about your other friends? Well, they don't have that kind of money, Mr. Potter. You know that. You're the only one in town that can help me. <laughs> I've suddenly become quite important. <laughs> and he asks, you know, he wants an $8,000 loan. And he asks what kind of assets he has. And all he's got is $15,000 life insurance policy that has $500 in equity. 
Look at you. You used to be so cocky. You were going to go out and conquer the world. You once called me a warped, frustrated old man. What are you but a warped, frustrated young man? Miserable little clerk crawling in here on your hands and knees and begging for help. No securities, no stocks, no bonds, nothing but a miserable little $500 equity and a life insurance policy. And then the line that you got to put in for this movie to work. <laughs> You're worth more dead than alive. Man, Potter's so loving that he got this moment. Yeah. Why don't you go to the riffraff you love so much and ask them to let you have 8000 You know why? Because they'd run you out of town on a rail. Which is wrong, because we'll later find out that's right. Um, and but so he's a, not, he's a frustrated guy. How would he know what's the best of humanity? You know? Yeah. Well, and he's only seen the worst of humanity. Right, right. Why would humanity show Mr. Potter anything else? Yeah. And basically he goes, not only am I not going to give you the loan, but I'm going to get a warrant sworn out for your arrest. And George heads out into the snowstorm. It's about 80 to 90 degrees in Encino when they shot this, by the way. <sighs> um, and which is rough because you got to dress in all the warm, you know, winter clothes and run around. Yeah. In the past, in black and white films, they had made fake snow as cornflakes. Yes. And the reason Capper didn't want to use cornflakes is you couldn't record sound because it's crunching every time everybody moves. So this is some weird mix of shaved ice, gypsum, plaster, and soap and water. Yeah. Um, when I lived in LA a few years ago, Frank Capra, the third, mm. along, uh, along with, an, um, I think Zuzu, I think the actress who played Zuzu and a few other people held a screening of it's a wonderful life at the, um, Academy's theater. And I bought tickets for it. It was like five bucks. I bought tickets for mm. it. Uh, it was great. And they present, they did a whole presentation before the movie. And one of the people who was there was a technician or prop person, and they brought the snow out and a massive fan. Wow. And they blew the snow on us so that we would feel and see what it looked like, uh, the contraption that they used. Because not only cornflakes, they also used asbestos in those days back then right. to simulate snow. So this was something new. And so they showed us, and it was Awesome. When they turned this, ma I mean, I'm talking massive fan that blew all over everybody who was there. It was such a great experience to see it in the air, but then also to feel it in our hands as kind of like a, um, a visceral connection to the movie. So it was such a great experience. So that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, it and, was and this technology won a special Academy Award mm. for special effects, and which is sadly the only Academy Award this movie won. Yeah, great. Um, we're at Martinis. And George is sitting at the bar, looking at his life insurance policy, drinking. And Jimmy Stewart is so amazing. Yeah. Dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope, right? We see Sheldon Leonard behind the bar, plays Nick. Uh, Sheldon Leonard is a big, goes on to be a big producer. He produces I Spy. He produces The Dick Van Dyke Show. He oh, produces wow. Make Room for Daddy. Yep. Um, huh. 
I didn't know that. Jeez. First time I heard his name was on the Bill Cosby at, uh, album, Wonderful. And I listened to Bill Cosby obsessively. Yeah. He talks about Sheldon Leonard. Wow. Because he worked with him on I Spy. How funny. And there is a woman who is singing in the background. And that woman, which I didn't know, is Adriana Casalotti. Okay. Do you know who that is? No. This would be a good one for the Schmodown, actually. <laughs> she is the voice of Snow White. Oh. Is that Snow White is singing at Martini's in It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And Martini comes up and is very concerned about George. Why are you dream so much, my friend? Please go home, Mr. Bailey. This is Christmas Eve. And a guy at the bar says, Bailey? Which Bailey? This Mr. George Bailey. And he gets up and punches him because this is Mr. Welsh, the husband of the teacher that George bawled out. <laughs> Which I kind of go, dude, your wife is probably really upset. What are you doing at a bar on Christmas Eve? <laughs> well, he had to come out and drink and calm down too. Uh, and Martini kicks him out and, and George stumbles, basically stumbles out trying to find his insurance policy. Yeah. And he gets out. He's driving drunk, loses control of his car, which hits a tree. And out comes this guy very upset because his grandfather part planted that tree. Uh, this actor, by the way, is named Jay Farrell McDonald. Okay. He acted in over 325 movies. Wow. And directed 44 silent films. Jesus, this guy. And do you remember when I was on the Top 10 show with you doing the cinephile movies? Yes, yes. silent film I mentioned that people should see is Sunrise. Yeah. He's in it. Oh, wow. Yeah. He gets only one scene in this movie. Yep. I mean, you know, particularly during the studio system when they're making so many films. Right. Right. There are these guys that just pop up over and over again. Yeah. George stumbles onto this bridge and he looks down at the raging water below. And of course, we know what he's thinking. And we see this man, older man watching him. We don't know who it is. And he gets himself ready. And then we see that guy jump off the bridge into the water and yell for help. Help! Help! And George strips off his shirt and dives into the water. Uh, by the way, the, the toll keeper at the bridge comes out with the world's most powerful flashlight. <laughs> yeah, I know, right. And right. George is rescuing, who we <laughs> will find out is Clarence. And I love Clarence's smile in the water as he's being rescued. Also, the 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 soapy whatever material they use to make the snow doesn't look that good on them in the water when it's wet. Oh, fair point, yeah. And now we're in the toll house. <laughs> There's a reaction from the toll keeper at Clarence who's wearing some uh, under some odd undergarments. I didn't have time to get some stylish underwear. Wife gave me this on my last birthday. I passed away in it. This will be the first of many big reactions from the toll keeper in the background. Great double takes by this guy. So much fun. Barely barely has a line or a few lines, and he's just fantastic. Yeah. Well, and this is, again, this is what elevates great films. Is there any reason why this guy has to be in the scene? No, but it Except works. It makes the scene better. Yeah. It totally makes the scene better. How did you happen to fall in? I didn't fall in. I jumped in to save George. To save me? Well, I did, didn't I? You didn't go through with it, did you? And I, I just love this slow way that Clarence is going to say what he's actually there for. Yeah. Go through with what? Suicide. Oh, it's against the law to commit suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Well, where do you come from? And the tollkeeper is about to again spit his tobacco out. Heaven? And again, he stops him. Well, who are you then? Clarence Oddbody, AS2. 
AS2. What, what, what's that? AS2. Angel, second class. And now the tollkeeper falls out of his chair. One way you can help me. You don't happen to have 8,000 bucks on you. Oh, no, no. We don't use money in heaven. No, it comes in pretty handy down here, Bob. I think that is a big line for George. He has lived his whole life by a set of values taught to him by his father. You know, that sign under the photo that says, what you take with you is what you give away. And he'd been living his life by that rule. Yeah. And that rule has not worked very well for him, he thinks. Yeah. And George believes that the world would be better off if he wasn't alive. Yeah, so you still think killing yourself would make everyone feel happier, right? And I think George has the thought then of how Mary and the kids and everybody else would feel if he killed himself. And he's like, okay, maybe that wouldn't be so good. And then he has the next thought. I suppose it'd been better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. And at first Clarence gets... Tells him to stop talking like that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's an idea. And it's interesting because you kind of feel like Clarence is having a mental conversation with Joseph, you know, yeah, in this yeah. moment. This is great. What do you think? Yeah, that'll do it. All right. You've got your wish. You've never been bored. And the door blows open. You don't have to make all that fuss about it. He tells him you don't exist. And suddenly George touches his ear because he can hear out of that ear. Yeah. And this is going to be all the little small realizations moving towards bigger ones. We walk to where he crashed his car. No car. Same guy comes out. You had me worried. One of the oldest trees in Pottersville. Pottersville? Why, you mean Bedford Falls? I mean Pottersville. Don't think I know where I live. So... The town had to have been named Bedford Falls at some point and turned into Pottersville. Yeah, yeah. Because even if George didn't exist, it was Bedford Falls before he was born. <laughs> um, and we get to the bar, which is not martinis. Yeah. The whole atmosphere is different. Instead of the singing and the Christmas music, there is jazz music, a lot of smoke, and a lot of intense angry men at the bar. Oh, uh, Nick, hey, where's the martini? Want a martini? Oh, no, martini, your boss, where is he? Hey, look, I'm the boss. You want a drink or don't you? So Sheldon Leonard was well known for playing, you know, New York tough guy types. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mulled wine, heavy on the cinnamon and light on the clothes. Give me light and be lively. By the way, this next line from Nick is one I think about all the time, and I, I actually agree to some degree with this bar. Hey, look, mister. We save hard drinks in here for men who want to get drunk fast, and we don't need any characters around to give the joint atmosphere. Is that clear? So funny. Yeah, he's great. I think he was in Guys and Dolls. Yeah, he's in Guys and Dolls. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in tons of stuff. Yeah. I know he's in uh, Lady for a Day, the Capra, or Pocket Full of Miracles, the oh. Capra remake of his own movie. Gotcha, yeah. And George keeps talking to Nick like he knows them because he does know him. Comedy just made it. Made what? Every time you hear a bell rings, it means that some angel's just got his wings. Which Nick reacts to. And I this is the thought that I had as George and Clarence are whispering together. And I never had this thought before as Nick is looking at them. And I went... Does Nick think that George and Clarence are gay? Oh, I didn't even think about that. I think he does. Maybe. Maybe. Quite possibly. Yeah. And there's another line that kind of points to that, too. Mm. That does it. 
Aren't you two pixies go through the door or out the window? Look, Nick, what's wrong? Good point. Yeah, pixies. Maybe. Yeah, pixies. Yeah, maybe. Well, that's another thing. Where do you come off calling me Nick? Well, Nick, that's your name. What's that got to do with it? I don't know you from Adam's off ox. And then we hear that a rummy is coming in and in comes Mr. Gower. Looking terrible. And then this moment, it always struck me in a weird way. And I wonder if you or anyone else listening has ever had this thought. Because George sees him. Mr. Gower, but that's George Bailey. Don't you know him? And Gower goes, oh, no. And the thought, the weird thought I've always had, mm-hmm. Gower's reaction to George is very strange. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a drunk and he's, you know, kind of out of it. It almost feels like this super drunk Mr. Gower is channeling some memory of the other timeline where george existed that is the thought i've always because his reaction to george is so intense has anyone listening ever had this thought or am i the only one i have never had this thought. it's a weird thought you're trying to bring multiverses into the capra situation come on now well clearly that's what this is this is an alternate timeline it's an alternate okay fine yes for sure um is this real that's the question that is a good question yeah hey nick isn't that Mr. Gower, the druggist? You know, that's another reason for me not to like you. That rumhead spent 20 years in jail for poisoning a kid. If you know him, you must be a jailbird yourself. And they get thrown out of Nick's. All of the effects of George, this is the, this is the first really big one that yeah. we see. You see, George, you were not there to stop Gower from putting that poison into the cabinet. What do you mean I wasn't there? Remember the stick? And he looks up, and instead of a sign that says Martinis, there's a sign that says Nick's. Yeah. What do you think happened to Martini? It's a good question. Uh, do they not reference it during this timeline? What happened to Martin? Nope. Nope. He probably never bought a house. Yep. Probably never got out of that situation. And Nick, being a younger guy, was able to make his money the way he was and got the bar. Yep. So Martini never had the bar, never opened a restaurant, probably never did anything. Well, just kind of did his the, thing. You know? The guy that runs everything in this town would probably call martini a garlic eater right right and not allow him to have yeah yep. exactly that approve him for anything yeah and now he's trying to figure out what the deal is with clarence like you know is he a hypnotist did he put something in the drinks it's because you were not born well if i wasn't born who am i you're nobody you have no identity oh what do you mean no identity my name's george bailey there is no george bailey and george starts looking through his pockets for his driver's license and and yeah. clarence sees it all Knows what he's looking for, and he goes to his pocket, and Clarence says, They're not there either. What? Zuzu's petals. You've been given a great gift, George. A chance to see what the world would be like without you. Would you want to see what the world would be like without you? Oh, yeah. I've always wanted to know. I've always wanted to know. For better or worse. It doesn't imply that it would be a better world, you know. You're you're crazy. That's what I think. You're, You're screwing. You're driving me crazy, too. I'm seeing things here. I'm going home and see my wife and family. You understand that? And I'm going home alone. And Clarence, after George leaves, goes, How am I doing, Joseph? Thanks. So I didn't have a drink. And now George Bailey leaves Nick's and walks into Pottersville. (laughs) And the thing is, I mean, bear in mind, like, this is, as we said, one of the largest sets ever created on a backlot. And they have now totally transformed every storefront, every window, every sign to go from beautiful and warm, you know, Bedford Falls to Pottersville. And it's an amazing transformation. Absolutely. And even the lighting changes, the camera angles change. 
the feeling is less joyful and much more slushy is the word I would use. That kind of black slush that snow turns into when it's been laying mm. on the asphalt road for too long. So you see there's this already there's immediately this feeling of darkness that kind of overcomes you when you watch it before before anybody says anything. You just already have that feeling like, oh, we're in the wrong place, man. Well, and this is the thing, too, is that Bedford Falls is like small town America. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like Main Street, USA, and it's wholesome and it's clean. And Pottersville is like a city. Yep. And this is the thing, you know, again, I know we've said it many times at this point, but like the idea that this is a warm and fluffy movie is that what they're saying is without one person, this is how the world is. Yes. And what that means is this is the world. Yeah. Like that that's the real thing is that George Bailey is so exceptional that he manages to stop this. But this is pawnbrokers and lots of bars and lots of signs that say girls, girls, girls. And you could tell lots of violence and lots of police presence. And this is a dark, violent, intense city that we're in now. Yeah. They turned the small town America into the inner city in essence. It is quite a world, and George Bailey's reaction to it is powerful. And then he runs up to where he thinks the building of loan should be. Hey, where'd the building and loan move to? The Bailey building and loan was up there. They went out of business years ago. Which had to be when Peter Bailey died, I assume. Yep, absolutely. And then he sees Violet, who we last saw in a very pretty elegant dress heading off to move to New York, is now being grabbed by the cops with a bunch of other girls. Yeah, yeah. What was Violet doing? <laughs> I think you know what Violet was doing. <laughs> I think it's pretty dark. I think yeah. Violet, yeah, I'm not exactly yeah. 100% sure what level Violet has descended to, but it's not good. Yeah. Hey, that's an end Violet thing. I know that girl. And gets kind of pushed away, and he ends up in Ernie's cab. Ernie, take me home. I'm going off my nut. Where do you live? On a doggone it, Ernie. Don't you start pulling that stuff. You know where I live. 320 Sycamore. I'll hurry up. He's so obstinate in his belief that this is not happening. And in a way, if you want to go layers deep with the symbolism, it's kind of like sometimes people fool themselves that something is not happening in our country that is, or in our world that is. And so you can see that he is like, no, everything's fine. Take me to these places. Take me. You're all lying, right? He just will not accept what is happening, which is really surprising because George is an intelligent guy. He's a, he troubleshoots situations. He knows the right thing to do. He's found a way to survive. In fact, before the $8,000 uh, situation, you see him. He's walking in. He's got the newspaper under. He's got the pipe on. He's got the nice scarf. He's got the relaxed approach of a man who is living a good life with a good wife and good family. And all of this now is taken away from him. And his inability to adapt to the situation and his frustrating desire to um, believe that this is all a lie is fascinating because I think sometimes people want to ignore the terrible things that are happening in their worlds or in their cities or in their towns because they just want to keep clinging on to stuff from the past. Two thoughts. The The first one is it never occurred to me until you said it this way that part of the world that we live in is the halo that's created by our own personality. Oh, yeah. So yeah. that we, I, I think when we were talking before – and we we're talking about how Potter had never experienced the what he calls the riffraff because yeah, right. of how he treats them. So Potter walks around being mean to everybody, and that creates a world around him mm-hmm. that he then responds to and confirms how terrible the world is. And George 
who is a lovely, sweet person, has done the same thing. Mm-hmm. And now that halo has been removed and he's seen this other version of the world. Mm-hmm. The other thought I had as you were talking is that I think we have the advantage of having watched a lot of movies, including It's a Wonderful Life and fantasy movies. And I also think, you know, there might have been an advantage to doing certain things which might alter the way you see the world. Because then I think if I got thrown into Pottersville, Mm -hmm. I would go like, all right, you've had some weird experiences before. Mm -hmm. Let's retrace our steps. Let's calm down because that's how you deal with this stuff. But, but George doesn't have any of those experiences to draw upon. No. (laughs) Straighten me out here. Look, I I got some bad liquors. I'm not, listen to me. Now you're Ernie Bishop and you live in Bailey park with your wife and kid. That's right. Isn't it? You seen my wife. I think Ernie's performance in the cab is great Mm -hmm. as he's dealing with this person, you know, who's acting like he knows. Look, bud, what's the idea? I live in a shack in Pottersfield. My wife ran away three years ago and took the kid and I ain't never seen you before in my life. See? So what did Ernie do to cause her to leave? Or did she not want to be married to a taxi driver anymore? Well, we know that Ernie applied for a loan to the bank. Right. And the bank refused his loan. Right. Which so is why he couldn't get out of Pottersville. That's right. That's right. And and we know that Pottersville charges way more to live in his slums yeah. than it's worth. Which means, I don't even know. I bet that in in Bedford Falls, Ernie owns that cab. Yeah, probably. I don't think he owns the cab in Pottersville. No. no. I, there's been no money. And, you know, and this is this is the thing about poverty is like... No money and lots of stress. Well, maybe you drink a little bit more, you know? Right. And the inherent truth is that in certain ways, society is built to make sure there is a poverty class, to make sure there is a lower economic class. Don't let anybody lie to you that society, this society or any society is built so that everybody can succeed. That's utter horseshit. You need a working class. You need a lower level working class. You don't need it. But people who are capitalists who own large businesses need it so that they can make as much profit for themselves as possible while paying them as little as possible. That's why it's usually the big businesses who are against minimum wage or against increasing benefits, against unions, all that kind of stuff, because these people want to make as much money as possible off the backs of people who are working at lower levels and keep them in poverty so that they never climb out. Or it makes it very, very difficult to climb out because most human beings don't have the propensity to be able to climb out of those situations because we're all not built and raised in very happy, healthy, normal households with great um, psychological uh, upbringings that help us understand and disseminate information correctly. It may be a level of intelligence as well that's involved in all of this. So what? Why, where can I get that with inner city schools uh, and poor schools that have terrible books and terrible supplies? So it's built to inherently create this system. And that's uh, the unfortunate truth. So this is what Potter thrives on is, you know, calling them the riffraff, but he's the one that is enabling the riffraff. And a lot of rich people who are in power don't want to see that they're part of the problem. They think their success equals that they're, that they're not part of the problem. And that's usually the issue you run into when you try to talk to these people about what's actually going on. Obviously, these are extremely complicated issues. No, I just saw. I, I just saw. Let's move on. <laughs> thank, thank you. I, this is a podcast over, folks. Um, <laughs> we got here. The, the the I think like I, I'm personally I've always believed in the you know the corny slogan of a rising tide lifts all boats. It, like to me, it doesn't. 
makes sense to go like I must keep the the people working for me at the lowest possible wage so that I can maximize my amount of money. I think I'm better off having them have a good wage and having more people around there so they can buy my products and then I'll make more money. You know, well, and the other thing to me is it is true that there are exceptional people that could crawl out of any circumstances, you know, that all the things that you just said. Sure, sure, sure. But the, the question to me is, how exceptional should you have to be? Is that should someone who is a little bit above average be able to get ahead, work in a low paying job? And my opinion is, yes, if it's if you are working really hard, and you're a good worker and show up and do your job well, you should be able to get ahead. And Ernie, I am sure is a good cab driver. Right? You know, and yet, <laughs> apparently, like. and yet in Pottersville, that Ernie could not get ahead. It is not know how hard how hard he works. He doesn't get ahead, and his wife ends up leaving him. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I also love the moment as they're driving that, and Ernie realizes he's got a crazy person in the back seat. Is I love when he looks out the window and gets Bert's attention by banging on the door of his car. Yeah. So if there's anything that survives. Bert and Ernie's relationship is still there. Their friendship is still, yep. whether it's Pottersville or um, Bradford Falls, they still are friends. And we get to what is still now the old Granville house, still a ruin. Is this the place? Of course it's the place. Well, this house ain't been lived in for 20 years. And that's when Bert shows up. What's up, Ernie? I don't know, but we better keep our eye on this guy. He's bats. And we shine the flashlight on George as he walks into his old house looking for his family. Mary! Mary! And he is beyond uh, maniacal. He is like really grasping the possibility of having lost everything. And it's all tumbling down upon him as he looks around the house frantically, as if some magical room is going to open up with all the furniture and Mary and the kids are going to show up in there. And it's all gone. And the shot of him in the spotlight when he turns, that is, that's an awesome shot. This is not again a touchy feel good movie. That shot of mania when he turns to look of terror, it's reminiscent of Vertigo. When he turns to yeah. look at them in that spotlight and the just crazy-eyed look in his face of utter uh, just uh, I don't know, I don't know what the word is. I can't find the word for it, but it's utter just grasping of the loss of everything at once. Terror, utter terror. I terror. Guess. Yeah, well, I mean, can, I can't imagine like suddenly coming home to my home and it not being my home and my family is gone. And like, I can't imagine a thing like that. And the thing I love is Bert's still Bert. I think Bert's a good cop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, who's dealing with a person who's obviously around the bend, probably dangerous. All right, put up your hands. No fast moves. Come on out here, both of you. And Bert has his gun out, by the way. Yeah, Bert's a trigger happy cop. <laughs> yeah, we're going to see that in the next scene. Yeah. Bert, Ernie, what's the matter with you two guys? You, you, you were here on my wedding night. You both of you stood out there on the porch and sung to us. Don't you remember? I think I better be going. Here's the thought that I had, and this is just, this is a crazy thought and one that probably you shouldn't spend a lot of time thinking about, but I went, what if every person with a mental illness that we run into on the street is actually a refugee from another timeline? <laughs> that that the things that they're talking about that they believe they believe them because they really happened in some alternate timeline and they're now george bailey maybe and then you know we end up in a struggle for the gun and bert's going to hit them and clarence is there and clarence bites bert to save yeah. george yeah it's so good 
And George gets away, and <laughs> Bert's trying to hand handcuff Clarence, who's going, Joseph! Oh, Joseph! Joseph! And he disappears. And, and uh, Ernie has a great double take, like, uh, looking back, and, uh, and he's just like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need a drink. Yeah, I need a um, drink. And now George goes home to his mom's house. Yeah. Ma Bailey's boarding house. And this woman who answers the door is so angry and hard that she's almost unrecognizable as his mother. Yeah. Well? Mother. Mother? What do you want? And so now you have the experience of you went to your home where your wife and kids have disappeared and what your home was is totally transformed. Right. And now you go to your mom who doesn't know who you are. Well, it's really smart in the way it's written. We haven't spoken about this, but it's really smart in how it's constructed. He slowly loses. It's almost like a planet, right? You're getting to the core of the planet. He slowly loses layer by layer up until he gets to the most important part, right? Which is Mary. So he loses Martini, the outer people that he's helped. Mm -hmm. Then he loses his friends with Bert and Ernie, whatever. And now he's going to lose his mom. And now he's going to lose, uh, and eventually he's going to lose Mary. So step by step is really smart, the way the script is constructed. He doesn't lose everything all at once, and he loses it by familiarity, by level of familiarity until he gets to Mary. So the build is just so smart in how it's done. Well, and this is such an example of advanced screenwriting. Like in, in normal yeah. screenwriting, I just have to write this story. And it should make sense all the way along and all the characters' motivations should track and all that stuff should work and I should plant all the information. In this script, I had to do all that. But then you got to go back and say, okay, now I remove George Bailey and every one of these characters and their life stories should still perfectly track. Yeah. And they do. How Violet got to be where Violet got to be, we can totally understand it without George Bailey. And this one, it's like, okay, Laura... Bill, Uncle Billy's wife died and he yeah. went nuts. Yeah. And then Peter Bailey, her husband, trying to run the building alone on his own, died. And then she has been broke running this boarding house with no money, right. deeply, deeply in debt. And that's how she gets where she is when she opens up the door to this crazy guy. And probably dealing with some pretty bad folks who try, who try yeah. to trick her or whatever, because that's a that's a cynical face that opens the door. That's a questioning, don't mess with me kind of face. And she has had to learn how to adapt to have that face on. I used to have that face on when I'd walk downtown. The don't fuck with me face. You just yeah. kind of perfect that so no one comes near you or you hope it works. And certainly she has that in that moment. And and the desperation of George. Something terrible has happened to me. I, I don't know what it is. Something's happened to everybody. Please let me come in and, and keep me here until I get over it. Get over what? I don't take in strangers unless they're sent here by somebody I know. And then it's just like the moment with Gower at Nick's, whereas his association with Gower condemns him. And now he mentions Uncle Billy and she goes, you know him? Well, sure I do. When'd you see him last? Today over at his house. It's a lie. He's been the insane asylum ever since he lost his business. And if you ask me, that's where you belong. So how did he lose his business? I mean, because is the $8,000 happened earlier? Well, and so I was Peter and him. So the, first of all, I was clearly wrong about yeah. when he lost because I was like, oh, maybe he went in the asylum after Laura. But no, clearly he was around longer than that. Yeah. 
But I think, I mean, it, there's so Peter Bailey dies and maybe Billy's still running the business. And then there's the run on the bank. Ah, bingo. That's probably how it happens. Yeah. 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 Funny how she calls it his business, right? Not yeah. Apple. It makes sense that it's his business because it's after her husband died. Right. I think. Well, and again, this is this conversation you and I are having is yeah. the conversation Frank Capra had with the screenwriters to make sure all of this tracked. You well, know, the ones that stayed in the room, yeah, from what you said. The one, exactly. <laughs> um, and he goes and finds Clarence and and George as he goes forward into this close up, his it's just an amazing kind of moment. Yeah, yeah the run in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because he is freaked. Yeah, the slow move left to right. Oh, incredible, man. Strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? George still doesn't quite believe what's happening. Yeah. So he goes, okay. And I, it's a weird logic leap. He's like, all right, I got to get back. The last person I remember talking to when things were normal was Martini. I just got to find Martini. I, logic kind of escapes me. <laughs> but that's what he's going to do. And so he's going to head to Bailey Park because that's where Martini's house is. There's no Bailey Park. It's just a cemetery. And then he finds Harry's grave. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. And I think this is the last bit of resistance from George. That's a lie. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. He wipes that snow around and sees the years of Harry's life. And now I think George Bailey finally believes. Yeah. He breaks. He finally yeah. breaks. Because he has yeah. no tent pole in the ground. Yeah, nothing. Like, nothing. And like I said, like, uh, you know, the layers are slowly being peeled away. That shot of him, as you mentioned, moving left to right in slow motion almost as the mania grips him, um, is him realizing there are no tent poles in the ground. You know, we all There's need nothing. that one thing that stabilizes us when we're losing it. And the, uh, step by step, it's all being ripped out of the ground. Uh, it's almost like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind where he's trying to grab onto those memories yeah. of Clementine before they get ripped away. And it's exactly what's happening to him as he goes crazier and crazier about it. It really is. A, I, I have never had a schizophrenic break, you know, a psychotic mm. break. Mm. But my guess is this is a good vision of it, you know, mm -hmm. of of believing that you understand what's going on and trying to grab hold of, as you say, those tent poles. Yeah. And them all disappearing on you. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? And now George asks where Mary is. Yeah. I find it strange that this is that Clarence says, I'm not supposed to tell you. And it's like, you've been kind of, <laughs> that doesn't seems like an odd rule. <laughs> You're not going to like it, George. Where is she? She's an old maid. She never married. Where is Mary? Where is she? she Where is she? She's just about to close up the library. And George throws him on the ground and runs away. Oh, there must be some easier way for me to get my wings. Look, you've waited 200 years. You take all the hits, damn it. You get those <laughs> exactly. And we show up at the library to see Mary. And Frank Capra says this is the one thing he regrets in the movie. Oh, and really? I, I agree with him. What did he I, say? I don't think... I think Violet tracks perfectly to where she gets to. I think Bert and Ernie track perfectly. I think what happens with Mr. Gower works and mom works. I, this portrayal, this idea of the old maid and this, you know, scared, frail person that is Mary doesn't track as well to me. Yeah. In terms of what I think of her character. 
Right. What Mary would have eventually become, because clearly she was a very driven, strong yeah. woman. So, yeah, for her to end up like this kind of feeble, scared, screaming. Yeah. yeah. Capra says, what did Capra say about it? Do you have a quote from all, him? All, all I have is that he says that's the one thing that he regrets about the movie is the portrayal so, of Mary. And that okay. he would have had her be something stronger, I think, is what he said. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense, actually, when you think about it. Yeah, true. It plays for the drama. It totally works. Um, but because it wouldn't have worked if she was like, yeah, she just moved on. She was very fine and she's got a new husband and she built. I guess you could have George looking through the window and then have the jealousy, but this having is- him dial into the mania, I think works more, even though it is a bit of a sacrifice of Mary for sure. And now you, you've stumbled upon or, or you have discovered another of the terribly difficult things about screenwriting, which is it's, you get caught in an either or of yeah, yeah. this situation is way more is dramatic and powerful but it doesn't track perfectly with the character. And this is what I call when I'm teaching. It's like, these are have your cake and eat it too moments of going like, is there some way I can have something equally dramatic, but also tracks as better with the character and you strive to do it. And sometimes you get there and sometimes you don't, you know, mm-hmm. cause it's hard, but I'll tell you the scene, George Bailey from Mary's perspective in this scene is really scary. Yeah. 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 This man runs up to her talking like he knows her grabs well, he her follows her first this yeah. is a full-on stalking scene oh yeah follows her first as she picks up speed to run away from him he picks up speed to get closer to her and grabs her yeah it is super scary Harry, it's george don't you know me what's happened to us i don't know you let me go Harry, please oh don't do this to me please mary help me where's our kids i need you mary i mean that is terrifying yeah 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 very and she runs into a bar and there we see some of the, you know, Tom and Charlie are there and, and he's freaking out as they're trying to hold him down. And we hear a siren and Bert shows up. I mean, the, the drive to the emotional climax here is super powerful. Yeah. She screams and faints in yeah. the arms of uh, other women there who are there, but then all the guys from the town he remembers from his previous life are all yeah. there. So great. He's like yelling out their names and stuff. It's, it's such a interesting moment for sure. I mean, these are all the people he knew turning on him, right? I mean, where yeah. isn't that what we're always afraid of? Is that you know something's going to happen and like everyone's going to turn on you or people, especially nowadays. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting to make the connection to social media nowadays, where you say the wrong thing, people act like they don't know you, they'll distance themselves from you. How many people are actually going to weigh in to protect you because then they're going to be attacked? And so, in essence, it becomes like a mob type of situation. Now they're doing the right thing because they're seeing. A female citizen of the town essentially being assaulted or uh, or manhandled by someone they don't know, and they surround him. So they do the right thing. Yeah. But his franticness and looking around and everybody's name and whatever, and he's got the best of intentions because he's trying to find his sanity here, even though he's really violating a personal space and, and what have you, um, which is, of course, not what you want to do and not what you should do. But the reaction of everybody, you know, as they surround him and crowd him, um, it's almost like sin of the poet, right? And Caesar and all of that, like they surround him. And, and, and so it's, it's a very interesting moment. And he pushes his way through and just absolutely uncorks a shot on Bert um, from just kind of unleashing all his rage to run away. So even he, as an upstanding citizen, is brought to this moment where he's assaulting a police officer in his mania because things have been taken away from him. You mentioned earlier, oh, I might drive Ernie to drink. Well, look, here's a, here's a man with a wife and children 
and he's losing everything. And in a frantic moment, he punches a police officer. So, you know, this is this judgment we put on these situations, like this idea that people can be pushed to a certain moment where they do something they normally wouldn't do. So I think it's a, once again, this is not a fucking touchy feely film. This is much, much darker than people give it credit for. And this moment here where you're having your lead character, who's an upstanding citizen, punch a police officer, who's his friend, by the way, um, is really powerful. You know, it just occurred to me that when we think about this movie of here is how George Bailey saved this town, created this town, supported this town. What you just made me realize is in this moment, this is how the town of Bedford Falls supported and cared for George Bailey. Yeah. Because when you remove that town from George Bailey, yeah, he's a pretty scary, messed up guy. A hundred percent. They are in a way a, a codependent town in the best possible codependent relationship in the best possible way. That's why for me, as I've watched the film now, as I've gotten older, I don't know that George Bailey would have necessarily turned out that well if he'd gone off and, you know, traveled the world and made the money mm. and all this kind of thing. I don't know without Mary, I don't know how good of a person he would have ended up being. Do you know what I'm saying? Would he have ended up like Sam Wainwright or Potter in a way? And, you know, this is just because certainly he's got violent tendencies. He's got angry outbursts. So that's within him intrinsically as a character. So even with Mary and the children, he has those moments. So if you'd given this guy money, if you'd given this guy access to the world, what would he have really turned out to be like? You know, I'm not saying like everyone should stay in their hometowns. No, it's more a matter of like this particular guy in this particular case as we see, it would have been very interesting to see what he, be, what he actually would have become if he had gotten the chance to go and do these things. And people say things happen for a reason, and maybe things happened for him for a reason in his life so that he wouldn't end up in one being one thing when he really needed to be another thing for the universe to operate in a certain way. Eh, just throw it out there. I never thought of It's a Wonderful Life as a nature versus nurture movie, <laughs> but actually it is, because yeah. what is what we're saying is that who Violet and Ernie and Bird and all these people become is partially nature and partially the environments that they came up with and that environment having George Bailey there. Like, yeah. what if Peter Bailey had died before George was born? Right. And there was no building alone. And, and it was already Pottersville. Right. right. And he grew up with the really rough tenants that were at his mom's boarding house rather right. than growing up in the happy world that he grew up in. I mean, look well, at you can look at Richard Pryor who grew up you know, with his mom being a, um, I think a prostitute or, prostitute, or yeah. yeah, I mean, just look how he turned out with the the issues that he had. Yes, incredibly funny guy, but certainly a lot of issues with substance abuse to escape what he experienced growing up in a situation like that. You know, well, and you say that you know George gets physical. I don't think George Bailey is a unusually violent person. I think he's a totally normal person. You know what I mean? I think he's in the middle. You do? You think it's totally normal? Okay. I think that people get when they get pushed really far have a tendency to be, you know, we we've all known people who've had behaviors where at a moment where you go, "Oh, wow." You yeah. know. Oh, sure. But like is ooh, wow grabbing Mary by the phone is ooh, I, th I think he has a tendency to um let his disappointments overwhelm his better judgment. And I, I agree. Resort to physical reactions to that, I guess is what I would say. Well, he's still, obviously a gentleman and a nice guy and whatever, but like he's got that tendency to lash out. 
I, I think I think our our disagreement is only like on degrees. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, how often does would George do those kinds of things? I think the number of times George has gotten violent are the ones that we've seen in the movie. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think it's a regular pattern with him. Right. But that's just my impression. I also think Ernie or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No. I, yeah. I, I. But I also think, I mean, all of us at our worst moments can be pretty bad, you know? Sure, but he's not at his worst moment till now. And in the other fi- and in the film, he's ha- he has moments where, you know, I mean, he's got disappointments, but he's still got a job. He's got a thrive. He's got a business. You know, he's got a house. Yeah. So even in those moments, now the 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 destroying the living room, that's not because Billy eight thousand dollars. That's a lifetime worth of. Oh, sure, I agree. And that's what I said when I said earlier in the first part how he really needed therapy because his desire to unleash in a physical way to express his anger about a situation, he has a tendency to do that. Do I think he's punching people left and right all over the town? No, of course not. People wouldn't love him as much as they do if he did. But the moments when he does, it really just scare you because he seems like a decent fellow. And Bert's there and George punches Bert, runs down the street, and then, yeah, this moment – Bert just pulls out his gun and opens fire, man. Just starts shooting all over the street. Bert, calm it down, man. And I got to say, for a guy who's been in all sorts of Westerns with John Ford, he does not handle that gun well. (laughs) No? (laughs) To be fair, he got punched. (laughs) That's true. He's going to be a little grousy. Grousy. The angel thing is probably freaking him out a little bit mentally. That's true, too. (laughs) Um, And George has now run back to the bridge. Help me, Clarence! Get me back! Get me back! I don't care what happens to me! Get me back to my wife and kids! I mean, we've praised Jimmy Stewart's performance throughout this entire movie, but man, the mm. the sadness, the desperation, the power, the total human vulnerability that he he like rips open his heart and shows it to you in this moment. Help me, Clarence, please! Please! I want to live again! I want to live again. What a chance he took as an actor to take this role on, right? I mean, this is there's no guarantee that people are going to like this film. There's no guarantee that him showing this kind of darker side of humanity, darker side of the small town, it was going to work. But clearly something in the piece really spoke to him because what he delivers here in this moment is so moving. And like you said, just what an incredible display of his talent. You know, just, I want to live again. I want to live again. Like you're so honesty there who has, I mean, I've been at that moment where you're so fucking like everything is gone and you're just sitting there and you're like, please help me find the strength. Please help me find the strength. I don't want to do this. And so you, 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 I understand it. And and he conveys it so well. And I never understood it until I went through my own experiences the way I do now when I watch it. And it's incredible. He really nailed it. And so I imagine he, I wonder if he, New people, if he himself had maybe come to some of those moments in his own life, or maybe new family members who come to those moments in their own lives and maybe had conversations with them to really kind of grasp this moment and bring an authenticity to it. Well, and this is after the war. You know? Yes, right. Exactly. Yes. I don't know what actually Jimmy Stewart's acting technique is. Mm. I know that he doesn't come out of the school of method acting. Right. No, but no. that's what this looks like to me. Yeah, right. He's in it. Yeah. He looks in it. It's such, by the way, it's 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 hot. It's like 95 degrees when they're filming this. And so he's sweating, which totally works for me 
because it's considering great. the circumstances yeah. and just the last plaintive i want to live again please god let me live again it's so hard to talk about this movie without me crying yeah, I, yeah it's, it's just so vulnerable and then the cop car pulls up because bert just got punched and was just chasing him well wait, and... wait, wait. first the snow begins to fall again right then bert shows up hey george you all right Hey, what's the matter? I get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. <laughs> so he's already, he was just begging for his life, but now he's already ready to, you see what I mean? He's, yeah. He's got that defense mechanism or default uh, state of mind. Yeah. What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? And Jimmy Stewart's reaction to being called George is so great. And this, to go from the lowest low, I don't know what the biggest emotional U-turn in Hollywood history is. <laughs> But this is in the on the list because he is as bottom below the bottom as you could possibly imagine one second and then goes, George, Bert, do you know me? Know you? Huh, you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? And then he like licks his mouth. <laughs> My mouth's bleeding, Bert. My mouth's bleeding. Zoot zoot pedals. Zoot zoot. There they are. As a kid, for years, I didn't understand what Zuzu's pedals were because I didn't wasn't smart enough to track them through earlier in the movie. But the discovery that the pedals that he put in his pocket for his daughter are still there. It's so joyful. And I think this, you know, people, you know, as we talked about this, people think of this as the happiest, you know, touchy feely movie in the world. It's because of this moment yeah, yeah, right. that it erases all of the dark stuff we've been through yeah. because when he goes, what do you know about that? Merry Christmas! It's amazing. Yeah. He runs off, he finds his car and sees his crash car and goes, yay! <laughs> and then he runs into Bedford Falls, which I assume they had to fill this, film this before they filmed all the Pottersville stuff because it's now, you know, because you don't dress and then redress and then right. redress again your set. I'm sure. By the way, the, the composer is Dmitry Tionkin. Uh, for this film. Mm -hmm. And he was another person who was pretty pissed at Frank Capra Whoa. because he scored a whole bunch of scenes that Frank Capra just didn't use his music. <laughs> and then in this scene, he scored, he wrote a whole bunch of score for the scene and Capra didn't like it. And instead he used Alfred Newman's music from the hunchback of Notre Dame <laughs> and used that score to score this scene. And Tionkin never worked with Frank Capra again. <laughs> hey man. Who was right? It yep. seems like Capra was right. You know. Well, it's like the end of Die Hard is music from Aliens. Right, 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 right. Because they kept temping it with the with the or they kept using trying to use the music from the composer, and I don't remember who the composer is offhand. But but they finally went. You know, the, we tempted with this Aliens music. It's better, and it's like, yeah, it's better. You use what's better. Yeah. And George Bailey running through Bedford Falls, yelling "Merry Christmas" to everybody is so great. Merry Christmas, movie house. Merry Christmas, you wonderful building alone! And then runs up to, I guess, the bank and bangs on the window and says, Hey! Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter! Happy New Year to you in jail! And he runs home <laughs> again. I, I mean, you as an actor, have, mm. you, have you had to have scenes where you had to bust in at like 120% of an emotional level? Uh, no, no, no. Because um, that's what he does. 
Well, hello, Mr. Bank Examiner. How are... Mr. Bailey, there's a deficit. I know, $8,000. George, I've got a little paper. I'll bet it's a warrant for my arrest. Isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. And he's just taken in his house that's back. And then we hear... Mary, 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 And I love the way that he says kids. Because he says it with a question mark at the end. Kids! Because it's a discovery. Yeah. And him running up the stairs, he grabs that post cap that comes out, which he hated in the previous scene and now loves it. Detail after detail after detail. And the way he picks up and embraces his children at the top of the stairs is beautiful. Kids, Janie! Janie, Tommy! Look at you. Oh, I could eat you up. I also like, by the way, all the, the bank examiner, the, all the guy's looks that they're exchanging because he seems completely crazed. Yeah, but they're all just like, what the, okay, oh, all right, yeah, yeah. And then in comes Mary and she she's running up the stairs to greet him and he's coming down the stairs with all the kids hanging on him, uh, which is the image from the poster, of course. Yeah. And they're both trying to express their thing in the midst of all these kisses and I don't know, I mean. I don't even know what I can say about this movie at this point, you know? <laughs> oh, let me touch you. Let me touch you. Are you real? Oh, George. George. George is certainly trying to kiss her and, you know, kind of grasp her because George only left a few minutes ago for Mary, but for George, he, is, he left a lifetime ago. And yeah. so he wants, to, he's like just obsessed with making sure she's real. You know, just like with Zuzu, he's like, Zuzu, you know, is like, has that moment at the top of the stairs with her. Not a smidge. Oh, so he's laughing and all of that. So he's just kind of embracing. And then when, of course, Mary. And I think it's more than him just leaving a few minutes ago for Mary because Mary went out. She had a whole adventure on her own. Yeah. I tried to- because she went out, found Uncle Billy, found what happened, said and, and launched this campaign yeah. to save George. So she's probably talked to 50 different people about George in the last, yeah. I don't know how long he's been gone, an hour, two hours? Yeah. Now you stand right over here by the tree. Right there. And don't move. Don't move. And in comes Uncle Billy with a crowd. Uncle Billy's got this huge basket of money, which he dumps on the table. Mary did it, George. Mary did it. She told yeah. some people you were in trouble with it. They scattered all over town collecting money. So the way I've been doing the show uh, for the last several months is I'm usually watching the movie on my computer and I yeah. literally am starting the film every 10 or 15 seconds to try to type everything that happens and then rewinding and typing and rewinding. It is the most unemotional, non-cinematic way to watch a movie. You could, you know, watching a film in 10 second segments. Yeah. Every, I, I was sobbing this whole time. Of course. I'm, yeah. I, the, the movie gets me so much. And all of these characters that we've been tracking come in one after another. We got Ernie, we've got Martini comes in, in comes Mr. Gower, in comes Violet, who wasn't able to leave, in comes Annie, who says, I've been saving this money for divorce if ever I get a husband. <laughs> just, just a great line. Well, Violet changes her mind. Yeah. Not that she couldn't leave. She said, you know, I, I I changed my mind, George. I'm not going. She wants to stick yeah. around, so she gives the money back. Yeah. Yep. That's a strong statement. That's an empowering moment for her. She's choosing to stay. And then Ernie reads uh, a cable that says, Mr. Gower cabled you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright. You think Sam has become a better guy as in his older age yeah i think so. but i think he always loved george look he oh yeah i agree told george to get in on the bottom floor george didn't want to yep. do it i think yep. george in a way kind of judged sam 
And mm. here's Sam coming through when George is at his lowest. Here's a guy that he probably said, oh, he's superficial, he's chasing money, he has all these women, blah, blah, blah. He probably, in his moments with Mary, I'm sure he's taking some shots at Sam, but here is Sam coming through when George needs him and gives $20,000 just to start off with, you know, to advance you that. If you need more, let me know, you know, pretty cool. And and every single thing that's happening in this scene, I think is great. All the performances are great. All the connective tissues with all the characters is great. But what makes this scene work is watching Jimmy Stewart react to, to all that's happening. And that line from Sam Wainwright definitely, definitely got him. And then what's really weird is, Janie starts playing the song, you know, Hark the Heralds or whatever it is, which was so stressful and irritating in the previous scene. But now when she starts playing it and everyone starts singing, it's great. Yeah. And I love that the bank examiner, who was not the nicest guy in the world, walks up and puts some of his own money out to support George Bailey. He wanted to go back to see his family. He wanted to get this audit, but look him, he's sticking around here and singing along. It's great. Yep. And the sheriff tears up the warrant with a smile. And we (laughs) see, I think it's Eunice doing the little accounting of all the money that's coming in. And then in comes Harry with Bert, who is carrying an accordion for some reason. Mary, I got him here from the airport just as quick as I could. The fool flew all the way up here in a blizzard. And man, of the top five make me cry lines in all of cinema, right up at the top is. Good idea, Ernie, a toast (laughs) to my big brother, George. The richest man in town. And Jimmy Stewart's reaction is everything. Yeah. His face just falls. It collapses. And then Janie notices that one of the things on this table is Tom Sawyer. (laughs) Clarence's book, which he opens up and it says, Dear George, remember no man is a failure who has friends. Thanks for the wings. Love, Clarence. So to be real clear in this movie... All of that totally did happen. Wasn't a fantasy. It wasn't a dream. Clarence yeah, yeah, yeah. really made that happen. What's that? That's a Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. I love the inscription in the book. That it's just so great. It's a thing that we can forget sometimes in such a money-driven yep. world. How important connection is and friendship is in our worlds. And yeah, it's just such a great moment, man. And, and I'll just say. I've known a few very rich people. Hmm. I've known a lot of really, really unhappy, very rich people. Yeah. 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 Uh, including, including at least two that committed suicide. Damn. You know, like, so that it is, I'm not saying that money doesn't help. And there's definitely lots of evidence that below a certain amount of money that it's very hard to be happy. Yeah. But above you get to high levels of money, it doesn't generally make you happier. And then a, Bell on the tree rings, and Janie says, or maybe Zuzu says, Look, Daddy, teacher says, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. Attaboy, Clarence. And then we pan across the crowd in a big chorus of Olang Syne, and then the orchestra joins in, and the bell is ringing, and that is the end of its wonderful life. By the way, this movie, you know, at this time, there was the Hayes Code, which governed uh, what things you could and couldn't do in movies, things like language and nudity and violence and stuff like that. Well, one of the basic rules of the Hayes Code was bad guys shouldn't get away with stuff. 
people need to have comeuppance. That's one of the rules. This was a clear violation of the Hayes Code yeah. because Mr. Potter, as far as we know, gets away with it. Mm-hmm. And they had written other endings to have him get arrested or do something after oh, the really? scene. Yeah, they'd written stuff, but they're like, no, this is the end of the movie. And so they never returned to Mr. Potter, yeah. except the Saturday Night Live sketch. <laughs> right, about. which is great. Um, but I... I I I uh, I don't think it would have I don't think it would have worked. I mean, no, the whole point of it is that you've got you're always going to have these kinds of people that take advantage of you or screw you over in moments. It's how you react to it that makes the difference, you know. And I think that's what the film kind of inadvertently says at the end, because Potter does get away with it. Potter does move on. But George knows like how many people have come, and now he's got even more money. So in a way, he does get a come up, or Potter gets his comeuppance because George now has gotten even more money than when he started with that eight thousand dollars. So Potter, in a way, screwed himself by removing that money. He almost tripled, quadrupled, maybe sextupled the amount of money George Bailey has. So he has even more money to fight Potter, and he's younger than Potter, and he's going to outlive Potter. So, you know, in a way, George wins in the end anyway. Well, and this is a George whose faith has been restored. Yes. Yes. He's more adamant. Uh, Frank Capra says he got more letters on the fact that Potter didn't get arrested, that (laughs) Potter didn't, than anything else in his career. Like, what happened to Mr. Potter? How can Mr. Potter get away with that? Uh, What? Are you kidding me? Fans getting upset about the ending of a movie? That doesn't sound right. I've never heard that before. So I think we mentioned, I think you mentioned before that Frank Capra never saw this as a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. In fact, it wasn't going to be one. Its release date was January 1947. Oh, wow. Right after Christmas. Right after Christmas. But the mm-hmm. big movie for RKO that year was Sinbad. It was supposed to be released in December and it wasn't ready. And so they moved It's a Wonderful Life up to a December of 46 release rather than January 47. If it had been in January of 47, you know what movie it would have been com- uh, competing with? No. What? Is Miracle on 34th Street, which came out oh, in 47. Damn. Yeah. How do you release a Santa Claus movie after Christmas? That makes yeah. no sense. Oh, I, well, I think I think it was released later in the year, although we would have to go back to our Miracle on 34th Street episode. But I think they, their original plan was to release that in the summer or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. So It's a Wonderful Life, not even close to a hit. It didn't even break even. It wasn't close to the top 25 films of the year. It did get some Oscar nominations for picture, director, actor, sound recording, and editing. Mm. It won none of them. The win was for Best Years of Our Lives, William Wyler, Mm. which was also uh, from Liberty Films, and a movie that we have talked about doing many, many times. Yes, we have. And we have not done it (laughs) someday. And people really felt that Frank Capra, who was just, you know, unstoppable director, had lost his touch. And... And he made, I've seen some of his late 40s movies. Uh, He did a musical that's not that good. I think the last movie that really people talk about with him is Pocket Full of Miracles. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is good. But like he never, never hit this level again. And then the other thing is that in in May of 1947, the FBI issued a memo Mm. that said, with regard to the picture, It's a Wonderful Life stated that the substance of the film represented rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to those sources, is a common trick, but used by communists. This picture deliberately maligned the upper class attempting to show the people who had money were mean and despicable characters and that this was classic communist tactics. 
<sighs> it never ends, does it? It never ends. These people exist. These people get this stuff in their heads about it, and it's just absolutely not true. Um, there are plenty of people with money who are terrible, and there are people without money who are terrible. And so just like in this story, this particular person is this way, right? And there were many films about people in power, people in wealth for numerous decades. So just this particular film, you're representing this particular character in this way for the story, you know? So it's ridiculous. So ridiculous. Well, and to me, it's also like, who is the most American of American directors? And that's Frank Capra. Yeah. To if you for me, classic American values, a deep, deep, profound love of the country. It's Frank Capra. And yeah. so going like, yeah, clearly the guy's a communist. And I'm pretty I, I I've read a bunch about Frank Capra. He was not a communist. No. You know. So many people use that term. And yeah. socialist, they have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. So movies pretty much forgotten. I mean, if you're not a hit movie, yeah. you know, you, it's not going to play that much. And you know, they were not going to put it on TV or anything like that. And then copyrights last 28 years and RKO's library was bought by Paramount. And then somehow, I think it's the M&A Alexander Company mm-hmm. had the rights at one point And through a clerical error, they just forgot to renew the copyright. Yeah. And so the copyright lapses and people start to realize like, oh, I could just play this on TV for free. I have yep. free content. And so different every single network when we were coming up, this is what we talked about at the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. It was on NBC and then it was on TBS and then it was on your local, you know, UHF yeah. channel yeah. played all the time. I remember I used to flip channels because we could get when I lived where I lived in Dale City, we could get. Uh, Stafford and Manassas local channels so I could watch it in Dale City switch a channel and watch it in Stafford an hour later or watch it in Manassas an hour and a half later and so it was great as I finished watching it click over oh I'm, it's a minute it's an hour and a half into the movie I right, great I can watch that oh okay, yep. great you know it's so much it was that's I agree and this I mean thank God for that clerical error because clearly I think that's where uh, this ho- whole generation of us fell in love with this movie and yep. it became a tradition for us and moved us and touched us and it became a classic for that reason. You know? Yep. But by the way, one thing in 86, it was colorized. Yeah. And I didn't know that Frank Capra approved it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, I don't know, think he was involved, but I think he knew that it was going to happen and said, okay, go ahead. Now here I have a complete scoop for the cinephiles. Oh, this story has never been told as far as yeah. I know. Okay. And and here's how this came about. We put out part one next week mm-hmm. and I was looking at the Facebook page and I saw a, a comment from my attorney, the guy who did all the entertainment law work for me on the assistance and other projects, oh. whose name is Rick Kirshner, who is truly, truly one of the sweetest, most lovely people I know. He is a fantastic guy. And he wrote, hey, by the way, I'm kind of the one who saved It's a Wonderful Life. And I went, what are you talking about? So... Uh, I called up Rick yesterday Uh and he told me this story, which is in the eighties, he was working for Republic pictures and Republic pictures has the company that had acquired the whole RKO library. And they were, you know, a distribution company. And the CEO was a guy named Russell Goldsmith and Russell Goldsmith comes from the family. I think his dad started city national bank. So these are, you know, some pretty, pretty wealthy people. And they're distributing various movies, except It's a Wonderful Life because of this clerical error is just out in the public domain, although it is technically part of the RKO library. 
And Russell Goldsmith, I think on his vacation, watched It's a Wonderful Life and went, man, this is really a crime that this movie, it's like it's it's diluting its value because it's playing everywhere. And so he called his young attorney that worked at his company, Rick, and said, can you do anything about this? And Rick Kirshner uh, went through all the old files of RKO until he found the box that contained all the stuff on It's a Wonderful Life including the music cue sheets. And I never knew that this is how RK, that It's a Wonderful Life was pulled out of the public domain because the rights to the movie, they were gone because of this clerical right. error. Right. But within the movie are things like Irving Berlin songs. Yeah. And the Irving Berlin songs had an exclusive contract for that movie and were not in the public domain because their copyrights had been renewed. And so Rick calls up his boss and says, listen, I think that the, the companies that are playing this movie are violating the music copyrights. And so they reach out to the owners of the music copyrights who say, yeah, that's pretty messed up. We should be getting money for that. And then he calls up like a TV network that's playing It's a Wonderful Life and says, basically, on behalf of, you know, the Irving Berlin estate or whatever, we are going to sue you unless you stop playing this. And he, and Rick got every single one of these networks to stop playing it and got the rights back to Republic Pictures, who then first made a deal with CBS. And that's how it became an annual thing. Huh. Fascinating. Yeah. So Rick took it away from those of us <laughs> who watched it on smaller stations. But I understand why he did it. And it makes sense. You know, if you can... If you're part of the Irving Berlin estate, you have every right to recoup yep. your profits and your benefits of uh, residuals connected to this. So, yeah, good way to go, Rick. Way I, to go. I, I just think it's I just think of that moment of awesome story. Yeah. Him alone, just looking through the files and coming up with the idea of how to regain control of this thing. is kind of awesome. It was late at night. The snow started to fall through the window and there's yes. rummaging through everything. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> uh, John, we have reached the time for our final thoughts. On its way. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, this is a classic. I, I don't know what else you want me to say. I absolutely love watching this movie and certainly getting ready for our episodes on this movie it was so much fun to watch it again in 4K and the beautiful transfer they have there, watching some of the behind the scenes stuff, remembering some of my own memories with the movie. You know, as we're getting older, Steve, it's no lie, we're getting older. You start to reflect back on your life. You start to reflect on the times you watched in your, you know, your uh, your young adult pajamas, or your your um, you know, as a teenager, or maybe it hits you in your twenties in a certain way because you were kind of lost in your own life and wondering what to do. And this film, in essence, kind of like George Bailey's family or George Bailey's friends, is a tentpole in your life. And so having that to go back to every Christmas kind of makes it feel like Christmas isn't complete without it. You know, or and so you need that. And I think this film really brings that home and still delivers a powerful and topical message, along with uh, appreciating the incredible direction and performances, the script, um, the music here, and the the journey that this that George Bailey goes on. And so much of it is still so um, uh, effective today. Affects you visceral, viscerally when you're watching the movie and just hammers home the point of the importance. It's not, it's not that you can't be alone in life. Of course you can be alone in life, but having friends, having family, it's really essential to having a richer, fuller life. It doesn't mean you have to be married. It doesn't mean you have to have kids, but connecting with people, finding that connection can really yield such wonderful things in your world. And yeah, it may be uncomfortable sometimes, maybe difficult sometimes. You may be antisocial, you may be an introvert, but 
you know, making those connections when you can, where you can, can really help you out in certain times and, and make you feel connected to the world itself. And who knows how that can change your point of view, change your world, uh, and change your um, pursuit of things in life as well. So just so much of this movie evokes all of that in me. And of course, at its base level, it's a fantastic story that just gets me crying every time by the end. Um, and as someone who almost took his own life, it affects my me in deeper ways than it ever did before 2016. And I, I love this movie for that reason. So thank you, Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed, and the rest of the people involved in this. And Rick Kirshner for saying Rick Kirshner. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I have a thought and I, I'm not quite sure where this will go, but something happened when I was editing this episode earlier today. Mm. Uh, and I've been thinking about it and this is what it was, is that you might remember John, when we were talking yesterday that I had asked you if you wanted to see this, if you wanted to see what the world would be like, if you hadn't been live and you, yeah, you would. And then I never in general ask a question of you unless I know what my answer is myself. And in this case, I really didn't. And you asked me back and I kind of stumbled and said, I don't know if I really had that much effect. And you gave me some crap about it Mm. and I stuttered and didn't say anything interesting. And so I cut it out. So I cut that out of the edit. Wow. Because in general, I, I left you in and I cut me out because okay. I didn't think I said anything good. And then I, you know, I kind of debated about it. And then I've been thinking about it ever since. Yeah. And I was like, why did I, why did I stumble so much? Why did I cut that out? And I was like, you know, I've watched this movie dozens of times mm-hmm. and I never really actually thought about it from the perspective. Well, I admired George Bailey. I didn't think about it from the perspective of my own life and mm-hmm. the effect my life might've had on other people. Yeah. And then as I've been thinking today, after making that edit that I went, it's amazing to me how many small things have sent my life into a different direction. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have a story, there's a story that a guy changing his theater tickets totally changed the direction of my life. Mm-hmm. Like I might not have married Karen or become a writer or moved to Los Angeles or any of those things just because this guy, changes theater tickets right and that made me start to think of like man maybe i have affected other people's lives Mm. in all sorts of ways that i couldn't even begin to imagine Mm -hmm. and i think about you know this podcast or me teaching or you know raising a child and all these things and i'm like oh i'm actually affecting people all the time Mm -hmm. and and it made me think again, and yes, I've had some criticisms of some of the enabling behavior of George Bailey and wanting him to like, no, you can take care, better care of yourself. But I also go, the effect of kindness, of maybe just yeah, a little bit of kindness, even to the person at the checkout line at the grocery store, or the person on the freeway, or the person that you, mm-hmm. you know, the stranger that you meet, like even that little bit of kindness, you don't know where someone is in their life. Yep. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know what they need and that just that little bit of example and gentleness might make a huge difference. And so I, I, I still think I made the right editorial choice in taking that piece out. But I also think I was I think I was afraid on some level of thinking about it feels weird to think about my effect on other people for me. Right. And and I think maybe that's another thing of this movie of to not just take a minute to go oh, this is a good way to live or to, you know, but to take a minute and go, no, you, maybe I have had a wonderful life, you know, maybe my life is even, you know, important. It may not be the life you envisioned, but that doesn't mean it's it's not wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So 
that's what we think about It's a Wonderful Life. It remains my favorite holiday movie, and I think it's yours too. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we hope that you've enjoyed going through it as much as we have, and we hope that you've had a really great year, and maybe this is a good time for you to take your own moment to think about the effect that you've had on other people and the effect other people have had on you and the friends and family you surround yourself with. And maybe you can see how wealthy you are because of those people that you have in your life. Yeah. And we're going to let you do that because we're not doing an episode next week. So you take this time (laughs) where you would normally listen to the cinephiles on a Friday afternoon or morning or evening and you, or weekend. And you think about those things and, let that sink into your body and be ready to uh, join us again in 2023. And we'd love to hear your own holiday stories and maybe your own stories of how your life has touched others or how others have touched yours. And of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts of this incredible film. You can visit us on our Facebook page, do a search for the cinephiles. You can, you can follow the show on cine underscore files on Twitter, on cinephiles podcast on Instagram, please review the show on Apple podcasts and subscribe there. If you haven't already, or if you want to subscribe on Spotify or Stitcher or YouTube or any of those places, that's great too. You can buy or stream. It's a wonderful life along with every other movie we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. And you can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. Uh, and you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter and SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how can they find you? Well, you can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Outlaw Nation on Twitch, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, and my podcasts, uh, my other podcasts, the top 10, the Geek Buddies, and the Hot Mic that are out there for you to enjoy. And I want to stress this uh, again, the, the Patreon is really important as we go into 2023, supporting the show uh, at any level that you can. We bring you so much entertainment. We're doing more shows, more things to make sure our patrons feel like they're getting uh, enough bang for their buck. And I can't stress enough that we are going to have even more stuff going on here in the new year. Steve and I always looking to expand the show, always looking to create more for the show to do. So in order to help us do that, supporting us at whatever level that you can or jumping up a level, those are the ways that we're going to be able to do more things. Maybe carve out a studio, maybe bring in guests who will be uh, special guests for us to come in or do special interviews or be able to be on location for certain reviews of movies. All those things are, are things that we are considering and looking at. But to be able to do that, we certainly need to get um, people supporting us on the Patreon and continuing to support us into 2023. So for those who have, we love you madly. For those who are on the fence about it or hesitant, come aboard. Trust me, we never let you down and we always give uh, a great value uh, for your dollar. So just giving you a little pitch there at the end. So mama dollar and papa dollar, let's go. And I think that is it for this year. We will see you in 2023 with more great films on The Cinephiles. Cinephiles.